This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. A Wednesday edition of the Sports Bash live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. What it be, what it be, one and all. I'm your host, Mike Gill, Josh Henning is producing today's show. You out there, we've got a lot of thoughts on this NBA Finals, Sixers, Eagles, OTAs. We've got, did anybody hear Jeff Van Gundy's radical ideas to speed up NBA games? I want to get into that in hour number two. Keith Smith today, sound of the day. How about this story that I found? I don't know if anybody came across this. The five highest paid mascots in the NBA, you will be shocked to hear how much the highest paid mascot is making. James Harden, what's his future in Philly? We've got all that and more. Sports Bass Live, 97.3 ESPN, the free mobile app. Hey, I ask you to do me this favor. Text me at 609 403 0973. 609 403 0973. What are your thoughts on Rob Thompson right now? I came across, you know, social media is a cesspool. People think they know more than other people. Everybody has all the answers. I came across in my mind, okay, I came across in my mind one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have eight things right now that I would rank above Rob Thompson as the issue with the Philadelphia Phillies. I could come up with more, but I only have 250 characters. (laughs) You're laughing. Now, this is humor that you like. I mean, you're easy to get to laugh, but this one was like a real laugh. Well, it's a little, you know, it's like you're you're confined. I only get 250 characters. Not enough. You know, first we complained about Bally Falter. He was the problem. And I said, listen... If we're complaining about Bailey Falter, I think our complaints are a little misguided. Well, Correct. now the complaints have turned to Rob Thompson. I've got better ones. I came up with eight, but I could come up with more if I had more than 250 characters. I haven't bought the blue check mark yet, so I only get 250 characters. Somewhere around, you know, 14 things, I would have Rob Thompson as the problem with this Phillies team right now, which, by the way, I don't even think it's a big problem, the Phillies team. I think they're just not playing great baseball in the month of May. Like, not a surprise. I told you this was going to happen. So maybe because my expectations were on the money and maybe yours were a little misguided out there, maybe that's why you're wanting to fire Thompson, get rid of Falter. I told you this season was not going to be filled with a lot of fun. It was going to be a slog to the end of the season. But if you just can keep your head above water, get past some of the injuries, you know you're going to have a little bit of a World Series hangover, and stay in contention by the month of September, I said, and I've said this many times to people who come at me on Twitter, I'll see you in October. Well, guess what? We're in the month of June starting tomorrow. I said in March the Phillies are going to make the playoffs. I said in April the Phillies are going to make the playoffs. I said in May the Phillies are going to make the playoffs. And as we turn the calendar to June tomorrow, the Phillies are making the playoffs. 
Rob Thompson is not getting fired, and it's not Bailey Falter's fault. I've got some things on my mind that are higher on my list than Rob Thompson. What do you guys think out there? So I ask you to do me that favor. Text me 609-403-0973. Are you blaming Rob Thompson or is it? Okay, let's go down my list. Trey Turner's hitting 240. Not ideal. $300 million player, 240 batting average. I rank that higher on my list than Rob Thompson. Do you agree with that? 100%. All right, number two. Kyle Schwarber's hitting 166. Now, these are in no particular order, by the way, because I think Schwarber at 166, uh, 13 homers, 27 RBI. So he does lead the team at home runs, but 166. His on-base percentage, though, is actually better than Trey Turner's at 319. Turner's at 285. So you can make a strong argument that Turner is actually the more disappointing player but Schwarber, 166, is that higher on the list than Rob Thompson? Survey says. Survey says yes. It's just the Schwarber thing is complicated. Because like you said, he's got a higher on base percentage than Turner. So you're like, it's like, it's like you're getting, you know, half a dozen in one hand versus the other situation. It's, it's a, Schwarber's just a weird guy. I mean, the way his style of play is more appealing to like, the analytical guy or the person who likes home runs than like the, the baseball traditionalist. All right, that's number two on my list. Let's two. go to number three. Three. These are things that I feel are higher on my list of problems with the Phillies right now, and I still think they're going to make the playoffs than Rob Thompson. Let's go to how about Bryce Harper missed half the season? Is that a part of the reason why the Phillies are? By the way, are hovering around 500. It's not like this team is 15 games under 500. Bryce Harper has played. He didn't play yesterday, and people are wondering why didn't he pinch hit last night with a chance in the eighth, uh, in the ninth inning last night. Harper missing half the season. Is that a reason? It definitely has to be factored in. I don't know if I would have it at three necessarily, but I think it's more than definitely higher than Rob Thompson. They're not in any particular order. It's oh, just okay. the way that they came into my mind. Just I how, they, how they generated in your consciousness. Yeah, they just came into my mind, and I said, these are things that I think are a bigger problem than Rob Thompson gotcha, right now. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay? Harper, missing half the season. Agree or disagree? Agree. Okay. Uh, Aaron Nola, 459 ERA. To me, that's one of the biggest problems. I would put that even ahead of Schwarber, Harper, and Turner. Yeah, and I'm literally, I'm just picking out certain things, but you can go on Nola, well, 459. Um, you know, his whip is actually pretty good. His whip is 1.12. But I think the one area where Nola, he's given up way too many hits. He's given up a lot of runs. And he just hasn't had, like, Nola we know. He'll give you two really good starts, and then he'll give you three average ones, and then a bad one, and then, like, a great one. And then a couple good ones, and then two bad ones. And then, like, that has been Nola. We haven't really seen the great or really good starts from Nola. So Nola 459, that's an unacceptable ERA for a guy at the top of your rotation. I'm just tired of Jekyll and Hyde with him. It's like at some point, it's like, can you just give me something consistent? Like, if you're just a guy who goes five, six innings a game and you give me, give up three earned runs a game, I can live with that. But the fact that he gives you one game where he's like seven innings, 10 Ks, one run, and then the next Yeah, but outing, we're not seeing that guy. 
We used to get that That's guy true. sprinkled in right. like enough where it was like, okay, I'm getting that game and then two good. I'm getting a great game, two good ones, a bad one, an average one, another bad one, and then that really good one makes you go, there he is again. Right. We're not getting the really good guy. Right, we're not getting that as much. Yeah. Um, Suarez has made four starts this year and only one of them has been somewhat productive. And that was last night's loss. Yes, he pitched well last night finally, but coming into the game last night, he had an ERA over nine. But Ranger Suarez making only four starts this year, not ideal. Is that higher on the list than Rob Thompson? In a word, yes. All right. So, so far you're agreeing with me on every single one. How about Taiwan Walker's ERA? Of 557. Would we put that on the list? Not to mention a whip of 146, which is not good. Taiwan Walker. (laughs) Is he on the list of things that would be higher than Rob Thompson? Yeah, and yes, and it exasperates the situation that Kyle Gibson is pitching as well as he is for Baltimore right now. Yes, and listen, I think Walker's an important guy here because... They brought him in to be that number three guy that they didn't have last year. It was perceived, you know, you had Wheeler and you had Nola. Your third guy, it kind of turned into Ranger Suarez. But right. Suarez, you kind of used in the bullpen role, and you were kind of moving him back and forth. And I think that's why they got Soto to try to get Suarez out of that role as that lefty that can come in the bullpen plus Strom. So they got Strom and they got Soto so they can move Suarez to the rotation to be they're hoping the number four starter, they brought Walker in to kind of be that number three guy. Right, because the theory was is that Walker was a younger, better version of what Kyle Gibson gave you. All right. Uh, this one is on my list. It's not, like, extremely high. Wheeler 360 ERA. It's not horrible, but he's closer to four than he is to two. And for Wheeler, I need a better Wheeler than that. I mean, I need top-of-the-rotation Wheeler. Right now, Wheeler's pitching like a number three. I need him to be a number one. Yeah, I, you could almost even pair the Nola-Wheeler thing together. I do. I think the Nola-Wheeler-Walker thing, maybe Nola and Wheeler together. Nola-Wheeler together, yeah. And, but I look at them as almost a trio because you brought Walker in here to kind of shore up that number three spot that you didn't have in your rotation. Were you at least encouraged by Saturday's performance that maybe Wheeler is coming around? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Nola and Wheeler and Walker, by the end of the year, will kind of settle in. You know, I think Walker has – one thing with Walker is he has been a guy who in the past, he's got, what, uh, 23 walks in 53 innings. He is not a guy who walks a lot of guys generally. So I think that will change for him. Nola's even walked. I, and I think a lot of the Nola – this pitch clock, I talked about this on opening day with him. Mm-hmm. I, I think he is a, pr- a product of the pitch clock being a little bit of rushing him through. He likes to walk around the mound and take his time when he gives up a base hit. You can't do that anymore. And it goes back to the audio we played back in March when former Major League pitcher Dallas Braden said that, you know, there are going to be a bunch of guys mm-hmm. who they're, they're going to have a lot of trouble getting used to the pitch clock because they are not prepared for it properly, and he said it's going to take them a long time to adjust to it. All right, so that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I've given you seven things, and so far you have agreed that all seven are higher on the list than Rob Thompson. I confirm all seven are legitimate. You're agreeing with me. So far. 
I'm wondering what the people think. 609-403-0973. Where does Rob Thompson rank on your list of reasons why the Phillies have? Listen, they haven't, <laughs> they haven't, uh, well, I will say this. All these things are reasons. That, that these guys are all underperforming. Yes. But my expectations were that this was going to happen, maybe not to this level. Put it this way. I thought Turner would be really good. Maybe I didn't think Castellanos would be this good. I thought that Nola would be better. I didn't think that, you know, Matt Strom would give you so many good starts when he pitched. Stuff like that. So it's kind of balancing itself out. It's just different guys have been good that you thought would be good. All right, I'll give you another one. I'm not the biggest Hoskins guy in the world, but Hoskins getting hurt and then conversely Hall getting hurt. You are now onto your third thir- first baseman. Would that be on the list higher than Rob Thompson? I definitely think it should be in the conversation because of the fact that you anticipated a certain lineup to be out there each day. And now the replacement for the injured guy is not even playing. That in and of itself means now you're going to, you know, it's like if you look at hockey, for example, it's like, all right, well, you have a good goaltender, and your backup's pretty good, but both of those guys are out. Now you're going to the third guy. Right, now you're on the Zamboni driver. Right. <laughs> or, or, like, or like the Flyers in 2010, where it was like, where did Michael Layton come from? Yeah. Right? All right, so those are eight right there. So if you have Thompson in the top eight, you're, 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 you're wrong. You're bonkers. You're, you're wrong, okay? He's not in the top eight reasons why this team is where they are right now, which, by the way, I say is where they are. Where are the Phillies? Let's let's see where the Phillies currently sit. Um, in the wild card race, they are two games out. Okay, they're two games out of the wild card. So the manager needs to be fired. He's the problem. They're they're two games out of the wild card. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're firing guys now. When you're two games out, of the, two and a half. I'm sorry, they're two and a half out of the wild card. So they're two and a half games out of the wild card. Okay, all right, so. I only had 250 characters, so I couldn't put more in there. I still haven't got to Rob Thompson yet as saying, you know what? He's a part of the, of, of why I think. Now, I could put him on my list. It's not in the top eight so far. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm following what you're saying. I'm Are there any things I didn't say yet that you would put above Rob Thompson? Yeah, Gregory Soto. You got a problem with Gregory Soto. I do have a problem with Gregory Soto. This guy was brought in here to help stabilize a, an aspect of the bullpen that you kind of backwards your way into leaning on Zach Eflin for last year. Soto is supposed to be one of your firemen, your guy that you brought in in situations, and he has multiple games where he has imploded. And it's frustrating because with no Alvarado out there in that bullpen, now the you're down one of your flamethrowers, and one of the flamethrowers who should be filling the void in Soto is basically making you feel like it's a coin flip. He's going to do his job or not. Yeah, well, listen, I didn't even add that to the list, but you've lost Alvarado, who was maybe, I can't even believe I'm saying this, (laughs) was maybe one of the best, if not the best reliever in all of baseball for the first, you know, month or two of the season. Crazy but true. I can't even believe that those words are coming out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that's, that's true. 
I also would say Sir Anthony Dominguez has not performed anywhere near where he was in the playoffs for you last year. Not at all. Um, Dominguez, I, I don't know if it's a, if it's one of those situations where maybe he's in his own head or not, but whatever the reason is, it's just you look at him when he comes into the game and you just wonder what's wrong with this guy. Yeah. Well, that was weird. Yeah, I just had some sort of emergency set to my phone, or did I hit something accidentally? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I just looked at my phone to see if there was like a, like some sort of emergency, but saw my phone. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what just happened there. So, anyway. Um, back to the Phillies. Yeah, back to the Phillies. Uh, Rob Thompson, where would he land on your list of problems with the Phillies? So I gave you eight. I didn't have more characters to tweet if you're following me at Mike Gill Show. You said Soto. How about we do Soto Dominguez, you know, as a grouping, and then um, Alvarado getting hurt? That's a separate one, yeah. The Alvarado thing getting hurt has has not – it hasn't killed them. Like, they're not blowing saves. It's not like every – it's not like they were – during the Neris era, where they were constantly blowing saves. Right, a few years ago when they had the, the most blown saves in all of baseball, and they had the trade for, who they trade for? Ian Kennedy, I think it was? They were just constantly blowing saves, and you could make an argument that they would have been a playoff team they didn't multiple blow all times saves. if they didn't blow so no, many we, saves. No, we went through the numbers that if they would have blown half the number of saves that season, that they would have had... A minimum 10 to 12 more wins that yeah. year. Soto is at 573 ERA. Kimbrell, 585. Dominguez, 405. So those guys <laughs> not getting it done. I get the fact that some people don't like Rob Thompson's lineup. I don't love his lineup sometimes, right? Um, but I wrote the article the other day about getting – they need a right-handed power bat in that lineup. They do. They are missing Hoskins, and um, this is maybe the most bizarre and idiotic thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> I can't even believe that somebody came up with this and thought that this was an actual possible uh, – I don't even know where to describe this thing. They didn't sign Hoskins to an extension, so they weren't expecting him to be a big part. Are you kidding me? It doesn't even make sense. They The guy had 30. Look, I don't even like Hoskins that much. I don't say I don't like Hoskins. I did not like Hoskins hitting in the number two hole. Yeah, your whole On position. On this team, I think if he hit in the number four spot right now. Or five. And had a 30 home run guy hitting in that spot. That'd Hoskins be would be a great fit. Yep. But just to say that because you didn't sign him, they didn't sign Nola to an extension. Are they not expecting big things from him? What kind of asinine comment is that? That's, that's a, Let's not sign Nola and hope he craps himself. That's no. A, that's a warped wrestling. Not signing Hoskins doesn't mean you didn't have expectations for him. You just said, hey, I'm not going to sign you right now. It doesn't mean you're not expecting anything from him. So, eh, go ahead and get hurt. It's not going to change the complexion of our team. Are you serious, Clark? Holy mackerel. I've got a lot of bad ones in my day. That one is at the top of the list of things that I could not believe I just said. And I don't even like Hoskins. I have to defend the poor guy. Look, this team's missing Reese Hoskins. I don't not like Hoskins. I didn't like where they hit him in the batting lineup. Right. And listen, I didn't like him hitting number two, and they made it to the World Series with him in, uh, hitting number two. So I don't know what to make from that. I think him hitting on this team in the middle of the lineup would have made Hoskins a much better 
more valuable piece to this lineup's puzzle. Well, right now, when you put this lineup together, and I don't love their lineup, but I do understand the challenges that Thompson has with this team. Too many left-handed bats. When you have a left-handed heavy lineup, that is a really tough thing to kind of navigate through, especially when you're facing lefties. You have this Cody Clements is a left-handed bat. You have Hall, who's a left-handed bat. So when they come back at first base, they're both lefties. You have Harper, who's left-handed. You have Marsh, who's left-handed. You have Stott, who is left-handed. You have Schwarber, who is left-handed. You can't play all these lefties every single day like this, but unfortunately the Phillies have to play all these left-handed players. Right, you you have to play them because they are some of your best available players. I can't believe that. Like, <laughs> who was the guy who was the free agent last year that uh, Washington traded um, to the Padres? Oh, yeah, uh, the big guy. Yeah, uh, Soto. Oh, Juan Soto. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was on the last year of his deal. Did the Nationals just say, I'm not expecting anything from you? <laughs> no, they want to try to trade him. Right, right. <laughs> they, well, they want him to. They're expecting him to have an MVP type of season so that we can get the most for you. Now, I'm not saying the sick, the Phillies. Put it this way. I don't think the Phillies had any intention of letting Hoskins walk. They maybe didn't approach him to sign him at this time. Why? Well, because we spent our money on Trey Turner and adding other players to this team. So we're going to have to help you out later. But to say they weren't expecting anything from Hoskins, are you kidding me? He could highly, he might be number one on my list of the problems that this team is having right now because they have no right-handed bat in the middle of the lineup. Castellanos has had a nice year, but he's not a number four hole hitter in the middle of a lineup, hitting the ball over the fence. Right now, Castellanos is just a guy who is hitting for a pretty good batting average, but he's not driving. He's not hitting home runs. Put it this way, okay? You have Schwarber, who has 13 home runs. You know who's next on the team in home runs? Boom has six. They have six home runs as the number two home run hitter on this team right now. Good thing I listened to you and put him on my fantasy team. Well, Hoskins, I'm pretty sure, would have more than six home runs at this point, and he hits right-handed. Castellanos has five home runs. He's hitting in the middle of your lineup right now. They are missing Hoskins' production big time. I can't imagine anybody is saying to themselves, well, they didn't approach Hoskins for a contract, so they really weren't expecting a whole heck of a lot from him. No, they were expecting him to be the middle of this lineup guy to hit behind Harper and spread out this lineup so that guys like Castellanos and Bohm can go a little deeper in the lineup. The problem is when, you know, even if Harper is ready to come back and play in the field, which isn't going to be for a while, people. People keep acting like, oh, he's going to play first base tomorrow. He might not play first base this season. And if he does, it might not be until, I mean, way after the All-Star break. And if it's before that, then great. Here's the problem. Bryce Harper hits left-handed, and he's already in the lineup. So if you take him out of the lineup or out of the DH spot, okay, you're putting Schwarber in the DH spot. But now you need a left fielder. And they don't have one. That's one of the reasons why Schwarber has to play every day because they don't have one. So Rob Thompson, yeah, 
sure, he makes some lineup decisions that I'm not on board with, but come on, people. The, the manager didn't strike out nine times last night, didn't reach second base for the first time in a game. Why does Bryce Harper get a day off after they had one? He's a designated hitter. I don't know why that is, but let me tell you something. That decision doesn't come down to the manager. That's an organizational decision. They all come together and map out their off days and say, you know what? Let's give him two straight days off. By the way, he's only a designated hitter. The guy had Tommy John surgery and came back from major reconstructive elbow surgery in like six months. And we're going to be critical. He's only a DH. You see how violent that guy's swings are with a repaired elbow? So they're whatever organization. This isn't like rogue Rob Thompson like, you know what? I'm going to sit him the next day. No. The organization comes together and they make that decision. Look, let's get him two days in a row off that elbow. And that will be a more beneficial than him sitting out one day. So I got your text. I see them coming in. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. I'll read them off. React. McGarry. MKB. Uh, David Sampson tonight. We're going to talk to Dave Sampson tonight about how much input a player has when a team hires a coach. He was a president of the Miami Marlins. When they hired a manager, did they go to a player and say, what is your input? You'll hear that from a team executive, a team president tonight here on the Sports Pass live on 97.3 ESPN. Now back to Sports leader. 231, text board is open, 609-403-0973, 609-403-0973. Uh, Taiwan Walker, by the way, 557 ERA, a 146 whip. His career ERA is 398, his career whip is 124. He has 23 walks this year. You know how many walks he had last year? The whole season in 157 innings? 45. He's already halfway there. So he has not been the same pitcher as he was last year, even if he was the pitcher he was the year before, where his ERA was 447, but his whip was 1.18. Your whip is very important. Less runners on base every inning. He's putting two runners on base almost every single inning. 146, not good. 118, which is where he was, very good. And they need to get that guy back, not the guy walking 23 batters so far in 53 innings. The walks have been a big problem for him. So he is pretty high on my list because they looked at him to kind of stabilize the middle of that rotation. Cole from LBI says, I don't think the Phillies are a playoff team unless Suarez becomes the number three. If Walker is your number three, that's not good at all. Yeah, fine. Suarez Walker, those two guys. I think Suarez is kind of rounding himself into form a little bit. Last night, he looked much better. He definitely seemed, uh, you know, more swing and misses last night. I think, you know, you saw the ERA drop from, you know, nine, whatever, down to seven. That whip is still too high, but I think you're going to see him now, you know, kind of Look, he's not going to be an ace of a staff. He's not a number one, number two. But I think Suarez is a guy who can kind of 
morph himself into the middle of that rotation. And if you could push Walker, those two guys, whoever can emerge as the number three, definitely helps out. But Walker needs to be wet better. I think Suarez last night finally showed you, okay, look, you know, the guy was coming off injury where he missed how long? I mean, missed these, this last night was his fourth game of the season, right? Yeah. And he basically missed an entire month. Yeah. He, last night was his fourth start, right? So if yeah. he only had four starts, he missed all of April and yep. basically, you know, he just started back up. So he's missed, uh, probably two weeks into May. So, yeah, he's basically in, like, spring training form right now. I think last night was his first kind of like, all right, I'm kind of back over the t over the hump here. Yeah, and they were they were saying on MLB Network this morning that, you know, we would be talking about Ranger Suarez today if it wasn't for Senga having this monster game yesterday for the Mets. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you guarantee the playoffs because of the addition of Trey Turner. Kyle Schwarber stinks. He's batting 160 with no shift. What's going on out there? Anthony Rizzo is batting 300. Yeah, I think Schwarber... Uh, his batting average being at 160 is maybe the most disappointing thing of all because of the no shift. I will say this. I do think Schwarber has something wrong with him. He's not moving very well. You know, you could see him in the outfield. He catches the ball if it's hit to him. Anything in the corners, he is lumbering over to go get. And I don't know how much that's affecting him at the plate. But Kyle Schwarber, for the people out there, Kyle Schwarber is traditionally a very slow starter. He has always been a guy, and many of these guys, look, it's May. Some of these guys, they turn it on and get going when the, when the weather gets going. Some of these balls that are hit in April that don't get out of the park, maybe some of these Schwarber hits over the fence. And instead of having, you know, 160 with 13 home runs, he starts to creep up. To, look, 220 is not very good. But if he's 220 and all of a sudden he has 20 home runs by the All-Star break, all of a sudden you're saying, okay, he's kind of turning things around here. But with Kyle Schwarber, he is striking out way, way too much, which you know is going to happen. But he's his on-base percentage in the last two weeks is 360. 360 on-base percentage is still pretty darn good, right? You're at 360 with a 111 batting average. So he's still getting on base at a pretty good clip. He just has to start getting, you know, I, I I think there's a hot streak in Schwarber coming where he carries this team through a month. When you look at what he has done so far, in the month of April and March, he hit 204. Now he's hitting 119 in the month of May. This month of May has been dreadful, but... If you look through Kyle Schwarber's history in his career, when you take a look at him month by month, in the month of April, he's 215. In the month of May, he's 187. In the month of June, he makes a big jump. So he goes up to 258, which, by the way, still isn't great. But from 258 to 187 is really good. I mean, that's almost a 100-point jump. So I will be more concerned about Schwarber if by the end of June we're still talking about him in this elongated slump. Trey Turner is a different story. Do I think that Trey Turner is going to hit 240 all season long? No. If he does, then guess what? That's a bigger problem than Rob Thompson is. You're making my point. You just said Kyle Schwarber, uh, Trey Turner. Trey Turner, not good right now. Schwarber, not good right now. All things higher on the list of reasons than Rob Thompson. 609-403-0973.
Uh, Jeff at Ocean City says, send Rob Thompson packing. Bring in new blood. Didn't they just bring in new blood last year and Rob Thompson was the new blood? So now every six months we're going to start pack sending guys packing? That's called instability. That's no good either. They won't get rid of Thompson, but they should. I have no allegiance to the guy and wouldn't mind seeing a change. How could he have an allegiance to the guy? He's been here for five minutes. <laughs> I mean, the guy was hired last year. What? But the problem is the people who are saying, Rob, they're That's not That's your boy Jeff in Ocean City. Well, Jeff in Ocean City is wrong, okay? The reality is that if you have a problem with Rob Thompson, you have to give us a valid reason for what the problem is. Because if you're saying that Rob Thompson is the problem... You're simultaneously saying... Well, I'll tell you this. What? Many people will blame Rob Thompson for not making moves that, in their mind, if the moves were made, they would work. Well, then that's that's faulty. That's what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? Like, he should do this. And you're assuming that if he did what you would do, that that move would work. What you're doing is, when you're blaming the manager like that, you're vacating responsibility from the players. Isn't that what everybody likes to do? Well, I think it's stupid. If you if you don't hold players responsible, these guys make millions of dollars to be out there on the field. And if you're holding the manager responsible for them failing to do their job, then you're being ignorant. A lot of bad takes today. A lot of bad takes today. Not surprising. We love blaming manager. We love blaming coach. There's no we in that. You don't. I don't blame the manager. Not me. I'm saying we, the people. Uh, Mike McGarry, who's he blaming? Where's Rob Thompson on his list? What does he think of Nick Nurse as the Sixers head coach? He's coming up next right here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, back on 97.3 ESPN. 245 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Uh, someone criticizing Rob Thompson said he chose to bat... Kyle Schwarber lead off 31 times this year. Uh, he's hit lead off four times this year. Four games he batted lead off and they pulled him back out. I mean, it's not hard to do research on this. I mean, I'm multitasking. I'm talking at the same time and I can find that number. Schwarber's hit lead off four games this year. Four. Four. Another complaint. <laughs> These things are unbelievable. Um, he's a good manager, but he sucks with all the changes versus letting guys figure it out. Letting guys figure it out. Schwarber hasn't come out of the lineup once. Turner's played in almost every single game. What do you mean they don't let him figure it out? I mean, if anything, you say, hey, Schwarber, you're going to take a day off. Try to figure it out. No, he's left him in the lineup every day. What are you talking about? You guys watch these games? Literally, do you watch the games before you hit send? Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City is here. What's up, Michael? Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good, man. Um... <laughs> we've, reached that, like it. <laughs> we've reached that part of the season. You know, the Phillies last night, no runs. It's one of those nights. You know, we all have them during the course of a long baseball season. Uh, but it's added to everybody's frustration. I've got at least 10 things on my list higher than Rob Thompson as a problem. Where would he rank on your list right now? Because it seems that like all fans, it's always the coach and it's always the manager. So where is the manager on the list of problems with the Phillies? Yeah, uh, not not very high up on my list, although I can see where some of the moves he makes are frustrating. But I think, you know, problem number one is the starting rotation, the lack of a viable fifth starter, plus some injuries to that rotation uh, and how that kind of, uh, you know, has made things even worse. And problem number two is they're just not hitting. And when you don't hit like they didn't hit last night, 
uh, you looked very bad, and they looked very bad last night. Yeah, I mean, I've got these eight things. I mean, if you think there's something I'm wrong with, you can stop me. But I've got Turner hitting 240, Schwarber 166, Harper missed half the season, Nola 459, Suarez has started four games, Walker 557, Wheeler 360, Hoskins getting hurt, and then Hall getting hurt. I only got 250 characters, so I had to stop there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree, and I think the the thing you mentioned last is maybe one of the most important things is is the injuries to Hoskins and then the injuries to Hall. One thing this team has not done is hit home runs. Hall probably certainly would have been able to hit, you know, 10 or 11 home runs by now, and I think they just really miss Hoskins in that lineup. But, you know, we said when he went down that you just don't snap a finger. Uh, a lot of fans said, oh, Hoskins, we're better off without him. He can't defend he's a horrible defensive player you don't snap your fingers and replace 25 to 30 home runs and 90 rbis at the drop of a hat and they haven't been able to make that up uh i got a text earlier that says they didn't sign hoskins to an extension so they weren't expecting him to be a big part of this team do you agree with that i disagree with that i mean i understand that this was probably was going to be reese hoskins uh, final season as a Philadelphia Philly, I think they were going to let him go after he became a free agent at the end of the season, but they were expecting him to be a major part of this year's team, most certainly, and they were expecting him to be a, uh, a key contributor to this year's team, most certainly. They were not writing off the first base decision for 2023 because they weren't going to bring Hoskins back in 2024. So, uh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Makes no sense to me. In fact, and look, I'm not a Hoskins guy. I agree. I think them missing that right-handed bat, he would probably be hitting in the number four spot in the order. You've got no power right now other than Schwarber. Uh, you're missing a guy who hit 30 home runs in the middle of that lineup. And I think, look, to me, uh, I did not like Hoskins in the two-hole. They made it to the World Series, by the way, with him hitting two. So what, take that for what it's worth. But I think he would have been much better situated in the middle of this order, and they're missing that big time. If Thompson is an issue, Michael... What are some of the things that you question uh, that maybe the fans are right about? Well, you know, I, I think he, he makes a lot of decisions, um, you know, kind of makes the same decisions that we killed Gabe Kapler for and Joe Girardi for, right? I thought last night resting Bryce Harper and not pinch hitting him, although I understand his reasoning because – when these players, everybody says, well, Harper only had to get up there and, and hit in the ninth inning. It would have been no big deal. It's practically a day off anyway. But people don't understand that once these guys, even the guys on the bench, know they're going to pinch hit late in the game. You know, Harper would have started preparing in the fourth or fifth inning for that. He would have gone down in the cage. He would have swung. Uh, gotten in some swings. Uh, he would have done some stretching and stuff like that. So it would have almost negated the day off, right? So I understand it. But at the same point, you know, it's almost like we are getting to a little bit of a sense of urgency here. Uh, although I know it's early in the season and I just checked the standings and the worst team in the National League, the Washington Nationals, are only five out of the wild card right now, which, you know, is a good week. But I just think sometimes, and, and Girardi did this too, and Kaplan did this too, they, they just don't ma uh, manage with the sense of urgency that we would like to see. Last night, big game with the Mets, 2 nothing spot. You know, is that a day to rest Bryce Harper? You know, well, let me I, ask you this, Mike. Is that. that a Rob Thompson decision or is that an organizational decision? It seemed like his explanation kind of was this was a planned day off. That generally, isn't that a, an organizational thing? 
Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's a it's a sports science thing. It's an impact coming in, input coming from a lot of different people. It doesn't mean I have to like it. I mean, I understand giving Bryce Harper a day off. I understand they had Monday off. So they oh, want to give him I agree. You don't have to like that it. I don't have to like it. But I don't know right. that that's a that's a blame Rob Thompson thing. I think that's well, he's, the... he, he's up front of the organization. I mean, he'll get the blame. Ultimately, he's the guy. You know, he he'll get the blame or the credit. I understand he's the face of the organization and stuff like that. And a lot of people are having input in the decisions he's making, but you know, they, they pay him to be the manager. So we'll give him the blame on that one. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Bryce Harper, if you want to give him a day off, give him a day off against the Nationals this weekend, you yeah. know, uh, n- not the Mets. Yeah, I, I agree with you that. It's, it's a, you had a day off on Monday. Did he, did he need two days off? But I agree. Right. I, yeah, that would right. be more of an organizational thing for me. Uh, let's go to Nick Nurse. Do you like Nick Nurse? Is he the right man for the job? And what do you make of, you know, Nurse and Embiid, Nurse and what that means for Harden? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just wrote a, a column on PressofAC.com where I talk about Nick Nurse and, and Trey Turner a little bit, too. It's like, to me, Nick Nurse, solid choice, right? Professional coach, uh, you know, qualified to do the job, led the Raptors to the NBA championship, smart guy, like what he's done in the past. He's a professional NBA coach. Does it mean the Sixers are any better today than they were on May 14th when they lost Game 7 of the Boston Celtics? I don't think so, to me. And I've been on the record with this from the get-go. The, Celtic, the, the Sixers' problem is a roster problem, not a coaching problem. They don't have that player who can create offense in the fourth quarter of key playoff games. They lost to the Boston Celtics because Jason Tatum was able to do it, and the Sixers didn't have anybody to counter that. Jason Tatum lost to the Miami Heat because Jimmy Butler did it better than Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown did it. So the Sixers don't have that player on the roster. Does hiring Nick Nurse make a difference when it comes to fixing that problem? To me, no. So the Sixers have a coaching problem, have a roster problem, however, not a coaching problem. Nick Nurse is a solid choice, but I still see the same Sixers team with the same Sixers flaws, and I don't know how he fixes it unless you get a player in who can create shots in the fourth quarter of Game 6 or Game 7. All right, so if it's not a coaching problem but they change the coach, wouldn't you just bring back the same players and say, the organization fired the coach, they changed the coach, so they didn't think the players were at fault, so do you bring Harden back and run it back with just a new coach? Is the new coach enough to change the mojo? No, I, I, I don't think it is. And I think you've got to bring, to me, you've got to bring James Harden back because somebody explains to me, I understand the frustration. They got to, they lost game six and seven to the Boston Celtics, right? And, and in the second round of the NBA playoffs. But someone explained to me how you get to the second round of the NBA playoffs, how you get to that game six or game seven without James Harden. So I understand that Harden's frustrating. I understand his performance in game six was abysmal. I understand he played for all intents and purposes, scared for his basketball life in game seven. But I don't know how you get to those games if you don't bring James Harden back. The, uh, the positive for Nick Nurse, I would say this. If the Sixers did have a guy on the roster who could create offense in the fourth quarter of a key playoff game, I don't think it's a bead. I don't think it's hard. And it could possibly be Tyrese Maxey. Nick Nurse is known for player development. Can he elevate Tyrese Maxey's game to where Tyrese Maxey can do for the Sixers what Tatum did for the Celtics and what Butler has done for the Heat in the playoffs? 
I don't think he can. I don't think Maxie's that type of player, but maybe Nick Nurse can get him there. Yeah, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City is with us here. Sixers hire Nurse. Phillies lose to the Mets. And, of course, we got it all for you right here on the Sports Bash Press of AC.com. Mike, we'll talk to you on Happy Hour Friday, my friend. Yeah, week's going by fast, so we'll see you on Friday. Uh, but cruising along on a, on a Wednesday edition of the Sports Bash here on 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill with you and my friends down at Trio North Wildwood. They're talking about Friday as well, and they got the fantastic menu set up for the Friday weekend. Make your reservations now on Resi and make sure you get in there. Bring a big party, small party, dinner for two, or a romantic night. BYOB 700. New Jersey Avenue, North Wildwood. But my recommendation is this. You get there on a Friday before the big crowds get in and you get the intimate atmosphere. My man, Chef Gus, is there. He'll come over and tell you all about the fantastic menu. There are so many delectable items to choose from. I told you, we went with a table of four. We all got something different. I'm telling you, the pork chop is what I went with. Backed by popular demand, they went with the meatloaf. One of the people in our party went with the monkfish, which features andouille sausage. If you're someone like me who loves andouille sausage, I don't see too many menus around there serving it. It's Trio 700 New Jersey Avenue, North Wildwood. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Just after 3 on the Sports Bash Wednesday, I'm Mike Gill. What's up, everybody? I enjoy your text messages. Here's the way to hit me up, 609-403-0973, 609-403-0973. we got a great show for you today. This hour, Keith Smith's going to talk a little NBA Finals, give his thoughts on Nick Nurse, what's next for the Celtics. Jeff Mosher has today's football at four. Former Marlins team president, David Sampson, tonight at five. And then Michael Kasky blowing in the five o'clock hour at 525 tonight. Talk a little Nick Nurse and the Sixers, how he thinks the fit will play for them. A couple text messages I want to start the hour off with. We got sound of the day as well. By the way, remember back in April or so, we're looking at the Major League Baseball standings and people were like in a panic because the Phillies got off to a slow start. And by the way, they're still not off to a great start. They are right about where they were last year. I think their record. I don't know what. The, yesterday we said they were twenty four five and twenty eight after fifty three games. They lost yesterday, so they're twenty five twenty nine. I think last year they were twenty four and twenty. Uh, they they're, they were one game better this year than they were last year. Right. So they're basically even now. So they're about the same exact spot they were last year, with more optimism in my mind of. Hey, I think Trey Turner is going to be better. That's just me. I think Schwarber is going to start to get hot. That's just me. I think you're going to see better pitching from Nola and Wheeler and Walker. And now you got Suarez back. So I do think you're going to see guys turn the corner. Here's the thing. If those guys turn the corner, you also need Castellanos not to go into a slump. You need Marsh to kind of stay more consistent. He has kind of slumped a little bit. 
Uh, JT Romuto has not had a big impact so far this year. Alec Bohm has been kind of steady, but probably, you know, need more from him. Um, the pitching staff, you really don't have a guy in the rotation. Wheeler, is he turning it around a little bit? Is Suarez kind of turning the corner after four starts now? Your bullpen's been pretty solid. If all these things kind of start to move in a better direction, this team, look, we talked about it back in April. Mike hinted at it. You look at the wild card standings right now, and sadly, the bar is not too high. The Washington Nationals are five games out of the wild card, and they're the worst team in the National League. And by the way, I say the worst team, Washington's nine games under 500. That's the worst right now, as opposed to Oakland in the American League, who is historically bad, who somehow just beat the Braves two games in a row. But Oakland is 12 and 45. 12 and 45. <laughs> That's so bad. Um, the National League, Washington's nine games, but remember Pittsburgh? We're like, if you really think Pittsburgh is going to kind of run away with things, okay, then you should be mad at the Phillies. Well, Pittsburgh's now 27 and 27. They've come back to life. They've come back to who they are, I should say. The Phillies are kind of just, look, who did the Phillies play in the playoffs last year? The Cardinals. Okay, they are 25 and 32. Who else did they play in the playoffs last year? The Atlanta Braves. The Braves, who are in first place right now, they've had a pretty good season. Who else did they play in the playoffs this year? The Padres. The Padres have the same exact record as you do. 25 and 29. Does anybody think the Padres are in trouble? I don't. Does anybody think that the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Miami Marlins, and the San Francisco Giants are playoff teams? I think they are, yeah. You do? I think they can be, yeah. You think the Pirates can be a playoff team? But not the Pirates. The, the Giants, though, yeah. Okay, the Marlins, the Pirates, and the Giants. Marlins, no. Padres, yep. Giants was the other one. Oh, Giants. Giants, yes. Okay. Uh, I would say right now Arizona has exceeded expectations. Yes. Do we think Arizona's for real? Why not? I'm just asking the question. Do I, we think, I think Arizona's for real? I think their pitching is... Better than we came into the season thinking Pitching's they were. Very good, yes. Merrill Carroll Kelly has been outstanding. Uh Gallon is I mean, better than outstanding. So Arizona's in the mix. That's a team that you didn't think was gonna be in the mix. Correct. The Mets are one game over five hundred. I mean, you could argue they might be better than you thought considering all the injuries that started the year with. So the Mets are the second wild card right now. The Giants are the third wild card right now. They are 28 and 27. Translation, people. Nobody's gotten off to a good start here. I mean, <laughs> I've been telling you since the beginning of the year, the National League is filled with some bad baseball teams. Now, that doesn't mean you have to set your bar so low to be a bad baseball team, but it does give you some wiggle room to get out of not playing your best baseball. And I think that's kind of where the Phillies are right now, is you're just trying to navigate through the first half of this season because you didn't have Harper for half the season. Now let's say Harper played half those games. Are you 29 and 25 as opposed to 25 and 29? So if you were four games over 500 as opposed to four games under 500, do you feel any better about this team? I got news for you. Probably not. If they were four games over 500, you'd still be saying this team's not very good. They're not where they should be. They missed Bryce Harper for half the season. They missed Ranger Suarez for 
more than half the season so far. So now they've missed Hoskins for the entire season. Now they've missed um, Alvarado. Their closer has been out about a month. It's hard to kind of navigate your way when that's kind of happening. And for them to be only two and a half games out of the playoff spot through all that, I think we should be pretty optimistic. Yeah, and the other point is, you know, context is important here because as you were just naming a bunch of different teams, nobody in our area is paying attention to how those teams impact the Phillies. I was having this argument with somebody over the weekend. I was saying, look, I said, you can look at the NLE standings all you want, but this team made the wild card last year. And they went to the World Series from making the wild card. So what's important? Is making the postseason important? If the answer is yes, then look at the other teams in the National League. At the end of the day, the National League is going to be much easier for you to make the postseason than the American League right now. I think it's hard for us as fans to come to terms with the fact that the 162-game, the 82-game marathon mean less and less and less. The NBA, there's an eight seed in the finals. They went 44-38. and 38. The Major League Baseball, the Phillies, won 87 games last year, and they ripped their way to a World Series. Get to the finish line and then play your best baseball. You don't have to play your best baseball in May to participate in October. You need to play solid ball for most of the season, get into the playoffs, and hope that you're playing your best ball in October. You can't expect anybody to play their best baseball in April, play their best baseball in May, play their best baseball in June, play their best baseball in July. That's not possible. You have to just stay afloat and then turn it hopefully on in October. And I'm not even saying play your best baseball in September because you don't want to play your best baseball in September either. The problem with the long season is people take the football mentality and apply it to other sports. Football every week matters. Not even so much, though, to be honest with you. Well, but it does, though, because you you learn about your team in a football season. I don't you agree know, with that but, anymore, man. See, this is why I disagree, because you go back and watch the second half of the Eagles' loss to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. There were literally things that happened in week one when they barely beat the Lions that Andy Reid grabbed and said, I can do this. So in football, you can look at— I'm not at, talking about those things. I'm talking about— for instance, I remember this vividly because a couple of years ago, I think it was 2019. Okay. The Eagles lost a game to the Dolphins. Yes, on the road. On the road. They suck. How do you lose a game to the Dolphins? Season's over. They won their next four games. Mm -hmm. And just because you lose one Sunday, you could be 9-7 and seven, like the Giants, like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Why are you 9-7? and seven? Well, we went through a stretch of games where we were missing two offensive linemen. We right. went through a stretch of games. So even now, football, you can lose games. Why? Because the parity in the league keeps every week meaningful. It's not right. like where it was before where, you know, you had to be 12-4 and four or 10-6 and six minimally to get into the playoffs. Now you can be 9-7 and seven or 9-8 and eight and probably sneak your way into a wild card spot. Yeah. To me, I look at the, the expansion of playoffs has in baseball shifted, and football has shifted, things. has minimized 
the importance of playing your best baseball in July. Because before, you had to play your best baseball in July because only one team in your division got in. Right. And that I do agree with. I think that the problem for me, at least, is that when I look at when I look at a sport like baseball, a game like last night, you lost two nothing, and the regular fan says, "Oh man, how can you lose two nothing?" You didn't even get a runner on second base, right? But then you overlook the fact that. That was Ranger Suarez' best pitching performance of the season. I took that game last night. You know, you throw out the offensive performance. Over a course of a 162-game season, you're going to have a night where you get one hit. You're going to have a night where you strike out nine times. You're going to have a night where you tip your cap to the pitcher, Sengel, who was supposed to be this great pitcher coming over here. Now he hasn't been as advertised. That was probably his best game. That was probably his best game. Sometimes you tip your cap. I agree with what you're saying. I look at the game last night and say, all right, offensively, they just didn't have it last night, whatever. But I take encouragement by the fact that Suarez finally looked like a swing and miss guy. Uh, he looked like a guy who is turning the corner. He looked like a guy who has made the jump from spring training, getting yourself built up to, yeah. I'm ready for the regular season now. I looked at that game last night, and I don't care about the fact that they lost to nothing on May 30th. Who the hell cares? But I look at that game and say, all right, Suarez hopefully turned the corner from for me. And I think that's where the fans have to learn to readjust. It's not about if you won or lost on May 30th. It's how you lost on May 30th. That's the larger concern. I think that gets back to the conversation you were having in the first hour about all the problems with the Phillies that are not Rob Thompson. The idea that... Well, somebody asked this question. Yeah. And I think this is a good question to kind of chew on. Um. He says, how many of the top eight problems you listed are fixable? Because I think that's a fair question. If I'm saying these eight things, and I said only eight because I only had 250 characters. I can come <laughs> up with more, Jay, from AC. More than Rob Thompson. I'd rank Rob Thompson on the list of things that I'm worried about as 12, 13, somewhere down there. I can come up with like five more problems. But how many of the eight things I came up with are fixable? And I think that's a fair question. At least half of them. Mm, let's see. Let me bring that list back up. I would almost say more. I think Schwarber uh, hitting 166 is fixable. I think by the end of June, if he's not around 200, and I know that's not shooting for the stars, but he's hitting 166. That means his batting average is going to raise by about 34 points. That's pretty significant. If you can get him up around 218 by the All-Star break, I think that means Schwarber got white hot. Right? Absolutely. Turner, 240. I would say by the end of the year, Turner would probably be hitting around 285. Yes. So that's fixable. Schwarber's that's fixable. Harper missed half the season. Already fixed. Already fixed. He's back. Right three. Nola, 459. I'd be shocked if he stays around the five mark like this. But, you know, I don't think you're going to see Nola in the twos. But you might get Nola down to 350. He could shave a run off that. Yeah, I just don't have a ton of confidence in him right now. That That's my only issue. Suarez, four starts. Okay, that's fixable. He's back. Right, that's already fixable. Yep. Walker, 557. I feel moderately confident that Taiwan Walker's ERA will be under five by the end of the year. I think by the end of the year, he's probably around 410. And if that's the case, that means he's pitched a lot better. Yep. Wheeler, 360. I think his ERA three sixty. I think Wheeler can get under three, like two ninety eight. And if that happens, Wheeler has really started to pitch well. 
I think that's going to happen. Hoskins is not coming back, so you're not getting that. That's Hall out. being hurt, he is coming back. Now, I don't know what that does for the team, quite frankly. He's a left-handed bat, and I've preached a lot that they have too many left-handed bats. So Hoskins being hurt. So of all the eight things I mentioned, the only thing that can't be fixed is Hoskins. I think seven of the eight things are realistically fixable. Right. So then it gets back to the question of who's to blame for this team situation. If most of the problems with this team are fixable, then why are we blaming Rob Thompson? Well, because people generally don't know where else to go. He's the easiest guy. And listen, this happens a lot in in sports in every capacity. Rob Thompson's a very laid-back guy. We we agree on that? Yes, in a good way, though. He's not laid-back like indifferent. He's laid-back as in he's patient. He's a very laid-back personality. If that's not your personality... You might not like that guy. If you're an in-your-face know-it-all, I know more than you, you probably don't like Rob Thompson. I like Rob Thompson. I think his personality fits this team very well. And why are they not getting off to the start? I think there's a little bit of you played in a game that was for all the marbles was the last game you played. We hear the Super Bowl hangover, the World Series hangover, and you saw it with the Astros. They did not get off to a great start this year. I think there's something to getting back out there and flipping that switch to a high level is hard to do. Let's see what the Phillies look like when the weather turns and these games start to matter a little bit more. Can you keep yourself afloat? And then, much like we saw with the LeBron Cavs for a couple of years towards the end there, where the Cavs were kind of like stuck in the middle. They were like the four or five seed. And then, of course, they'd rip all the way to the finals. It's like, how many times can the Cavs win 50, 60 games with LeBron James before you're just like, eh, I'm going through another 82-game slosh? Look, the Warriors can't win 72 games every single season. You just can't. Yet they're still really good, even though they're not the 72-win Warriors. Right. So, it, and again, I think that's where the struggle is for the average fan. The average fan, they want to win. And part of them wanting to win is they look at May 30th and they say, why didn't the Phillies win that specific game? Whereas the issue should not be, why am I losing a specific game? Your goal is, they, the Phillies said, remember the Phillies said last year, we need to win series. So what your focus should be on, are the Phillies going to win this series with the Mets? I think that's how people need to shift their attention. 609-403-0973. Mike, we need another red-hot June for Schwarber and Trey Turner. Needs to play like he's worth $300 million to get us back over 500 If neither happens, we won't make the playoffs. Sam from Avalon. Sam, I agree. See? If I agree with you, I am very agreeable. He didn't have to twist my arm too much on that one. Yeah, if Schwarber hits 166 and Turner hits 240, you're probably right, Sam. They're not making the playoffs with that. By the way, you could be over 500 by the end of this weekend. If you win the next two games against the Mets and win the next series against the Nats, that means you would have won basically four out of six games and you'd be over 500. 
Mike, you could fix the Hoskins problem by trading a pitching prospect not named Painter, Abel, or McGarry, or, uh, boy, geez, for CJ Crone, uh, and Kyle Freeland. Now, I mean, that's not happening. You might be able to get CJ, and we talked about him last week. I don't even think he fixes a lot of your problems. I'm just not interested in him. I'm not. To me, your, your idea of, of Jesus Aguilar is a way better option to me because Aguilar to me is a cheap alternative. Exactly. He's mashing left-handed pitching right now. To me, he's the guy that makes sense. You get a guy like him, you're not asking him to play a hundred games the rest of the year. You're asking him to maybe play what? 50? He would be playing games? whenever there's a left-handed pitcher on the mound. Right. And there's more right-handed pitchers than left-handed. Yeah, mostly left-handed pitchers. Uh, mostly right-handed pitchers pitch. Whenever there's a lefty, you put him in there as a right-handed bat. And he this year for Oakland, who's not a good team, doesn't have a lot around him. But they beat the Braves last two days. Twice, <laughs> right? Um, as a right-handed batter this year. Right. I mean, as a versus left-handed pitching this year. He's a right-handed, right-handed batter. He's right. not a switch hitter. He's hitting 280 with a 362 on base percentage and 882 OPS. Four of his five home runs have come off left-handed pitching. So I think you could plug him in and... And it would cost you nothing. Cost you nothing. Good clubhouse guy. And has a guy who could play first base. He could DH if uh, you need him to. I think that's a much better option than, than having to trade any of the guys that he's mentioned or not trade this guy or that guy. You're not getting Kyle Freeland in the deal for the, you just mentioned all these pitchers that you don't want to trade. They're not giving you Kyle. They're not just tossing Freeland in the deal for the low level mid, you know, uh, double A pitcher. Yeah. Look, if you, if you were to tell me that you have to trade one of these guys to get a upgrade in the pitching staff, I'm willing to listen to that conversation. I know there's a lot of rumors out there about Shane Bieber's future in Cleveland. You know, are you willing to look at a guy like McGarry or Abel and say, I'm willing to trade one of those guys? Well, he just said, I don't want to trade any of those guys. Well, I'm saying I think you should be willing to trade those guys. They're in a tough spot with that because this season was built on winning with veteran players. Right. And having these young players be the lifeblood in a win-now mode. That when the win now mode guys start to get old, here comes these young guys that can replace Wheeler and Nola. Because they don't have a lot of position players. Correct. So you have Nola, you have Wheeler, you have Suarez, you have Walker. When those guys, they're in win now mode with those guys. And your hope is that you can start mixing in the Painters and the McGarry's and the, and the Ables and not have to spend the money on Wheeler and Nola and, and that crew. That's why you don't want to trade those guys. And that's why the Phillies are in a tough spot. They didn't have to plan. They didn't plan on having to go outside the organization to find help for this team. This team went to the World Series last year and they added to it. So they weren't looking at adding more to it in the season by giving up players like Mick Abel, like McGarry, like obviously they're not trading Painter. So that's what makes it a challenging proposition. So if you can get creative, Hey, the A's are obviously in complete tankaroni mode. You're releasing a veteran player who, by the way, hit 35 home runs a couple of years ago and has hit right-handed, or excuse me, has hit left-handed pitching very well this year. Why not take a shot on him and bring him in here and hit him against left-handed pitching? And if he gives us a little depth from the right side, a little pop for league minimum, great. If not... You have till the trade deadline to reevaluate what you want to do. 
So don't go giving things up for CJ Cron, who basically is a, I'd say, below average player. I'm just not a fan of CJ Cron. I think he's a byproduct of course field. 228, six homers this year. He is injured, has not had any baseball activities in quite some time. 228 with six homers. Guess what that sounds like? And listen, he is a right-handed bat, so I'll look at his splits. Maybe he's hitting left-handed pitching really well like Aguilar is, because Aguilar is mashing against lefties. I don't know what Crone's hitting against lefties. I'll go look that up. When we come back, Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Is the Phillies lineup out yet, by the way? Let's take a look at that real fast. Phillies lineup for tonight is not out yet against the Metropolitans. When we come back on the other side, ESPN's Jeff Van Gundy wants to speed up NBA games. Wait till you hear his ideas. That's next. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Com. Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 3.29 Sports Fast Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy, now where's your ranking of Van Gundy on the list of NBA analysts? I think he's a better NBA analyst than he was a coach. Oh, wow. Do you like Jeff Van Gundy better or Stan Van Gundy? Oh, Jeff is way better than Stan. Yeah? Stan, Stan kind of bridges this divide between... Like Captain Obvious and trying to sound like really intelligent. I like Jeff's style of more just going with the flow of the game and having his little quips and owning the fact that he's an old man and watching a younger man's game. So like he he acknowledges like he'll make a comment and then he'll say, "Hey, but you know I'm the old guy here. What do you think?" You know. Whereas Stan, it's almost like he has an opinion, and if you don't agree with it, you're stupid. Um, I will say this. TNT with Barkley, Shaq, that crew inside the NBA, right? Yeah. Has a clear superior product in the pregame and postgame show. 100%. ESPN's game coverage is better. In-game, yeah. In-game. I th- and I like Harlan a lot. Harlan's- but Breen's best. the best, and then Van Gundy and Jackson, I think, are a good duo, better than Reggie Miller and Stan Van Gundy. Yeah, they complement each other very well. That said, Jeff Van Gundy wants to speed up NBA games. Wait till you hear these ideas. Have you seen this yet? I have not, so I'm looking forward to hearing All this. All right, Jeff Van Gundy was on, I think, like a call. Like a media call? Yeah, to preview the finals. And... He was asked what he thought could be done to continue evolving with the modern basketball coverage to keep consumers engaged with the broadcast. By the way, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals was the third most watched basketball game in NBA history. So, Wow. I don't know if we, I don't know if we need to continue evolving the basketball coverage, but maybe we do. He said, quote, well, the thing I would do is I would try to get into a two-hour window. And my biggest rule change would be to eliminate free throws. Until the end, uh, until the final four minutes of the game. If you're fouled in the penalty, you just get two points. If you're fouled in active shooting, you get the two points or the three points until the final four minutes of the game. You like that rule? So in other words, seven minutes left in the first quarter, 
You get fouled on your way to the basket. You don't stop the game to shoot the free throws. You just take the two points. I don't like the just handing out of points. You know, if you were to tell me that if they were fouled in the act of shooting, that you gave them maybe one point instead of two, I, I maybe could rock with that a little more. Yeah, but why you would just foul guys in the act of shooting all the time then? If you're only giving up one point. That's true. Yeah. I understand what you're saying about the free throw. The free throw does slow a lot of games down. And, you know, on a Tuesday night in February, and the teams can make a lot of fouls, watching, you know, fill-in-the-blank random player go to the foul line a gazillion times is not fun. So I do like the idea of finding a way to eliminate the free throw. I'm not maybe the greatest fan of how you exactly go about that. Yeah, his point is if you're fouled in the penalty, so over 10, right? every foul after the penalty, you automatically get two points. Okay. And then so any, you still have to get to that point. Well, any foul in the act of shooting, you get two points. Okay. So if you just foul a guy, you know, he's coming up the, the, the sideline and you body him and there's a whistle, that's just a foul. There's no shots anyway. It's just a foul. Right. Once you get into the penalty... If that same foul occurs, that's a two-point foul. So you're essentially eliminating free throws except for the final four minutes of the game. I would like to see this tried out and see how it goes. It would be very interesting. It's kind of like how the Elam rule is. Like Once you see an action, you feel differently about it than hearing it described. Do we feel like basketball needs to be... Like, it's two and a half hours for the most part. I mean, does it need to be cut down? Is that a problem? It's not like I've heard... I've never heard, like, basketball, like baseball, where the game's too long. I don't hear people say that, but I do think that, you know, if there was if there was a way to improve the watchability of the game, the idea that, like I said, you know, a Tuesday night in February, somebody's watching the game, and it's like, do I really need to see James Harden go to the line for the 15th time tonight? You know okay. what I mean? Here's another one. This one's kind of interesting. Although, to go back on that real fast, you just mentioned something that kind of thought in my head. James Harden at the line 59 with Joel Embiid. Does that go to your scoring average? It has to. Give him the points. Why not? Well, now you're really messing with history. You get a guy like Joel Embiid. Now, he hits like 87% from the line anyway. But and now he's this, essentially hitting 100% from the but line. But maybe this would cut down on people committing fouls. People are shooting. Well, I did think about it from that angle. Are you going to shoot less threes? Are you going to take the ball to the basket more? Right. Do guys commit less shooting fouls because they know they're going to get pegged for those automatic points? Speaking of shooting less threes, we have that coming up in Sound of the Day a little bit later. Something Barkley said that ties into what I'm about to say right here. Uh, Van Gundy offered another suggestion to cut down on the length of the game. He said, quote, I would cut back on halftime. I think it's a waste of time. Cut it down to like five minutes. Then we wouldn't have to hear the term halftime adjustments, the most cliche, overused term in NBA basketball history. So here's a coach who thinks the word halftime adjustments are the most overused term in NBA history. That will never change for one reason, television money. 
that is exactly what was offered in the comments was they're not going to cut back on halftime because the television networks go to break and stuff commercials in at halftime and they have the Toyota halftime show right. or the Taco Bell halftime show or the, you know, insert Whatever. name here halftime show. So that's not going to happen. But I thought the point that he said – the term halftime adjustments. He's essentially saying these people think these coaches are going back there and coming up with some maestro adjustment scheme. And he says it's the most overused cliche in basketball history. Yeah, there's a lot of people who say that the majority of the adjustments in the NBA are made in-game, not at halftime. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand how people think they, something happens, Right. And you know what happens is people watch Space Jam too many times and they saw the Jordan giving the halftime speech and the water to the guys and they come out of halftime. People take that and apply it to the real world. Like, folks, it, it was a cartoon movie. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. Brett in South Jersey says, hey, guys, I totally get we don't need to be at our best this early in the season. The season really is too long, maybe a different format. But are you watching this product or spending money to see in person with your family? Sorry, just not entertaining. Injuries are a major factor, but Philly fans want heart. Don't see it. I mean, there's a lot that I think, you know, without saying. I think Brett is on to something that many of us are thinking. The regular seasons, like the NBA is trying to put this in-season tournament in. Now, it's not catching on with me. The concept of the in-season tournament is doing nothing for me. Now, I haven't seen it play out. Right. So in concept, it sounds ridiculous. But in application, it might be different. I don't know. Yeah. But he is right. Like, at what point are these leagues slapping their fans in the face so many times that they finally say, you know, I'm not as fanatical as I was because your your season isn't giving me anything. Like, you can't have a league. Yeah. The concept of the regular season is, and David Sampson brought this up, and we're going to talk to David tonight. The concept of the regular season essentially has become a revenue generator. It's not about wins and losses at the highest level. It's about generating money for the business, the business that is the team. At what point do the fans say, I'm not interested in generating money for your business anymore. I want high-quality, high-energy games every night. You're not getting that. The only way that changes is if the TV money structure changes. Like they, they talked about the idea if you expand the NBA and you change, you take the required number of games to make X number of dollars, you cut those games down because yeah. there's more teams. I mean, that might be the only short-term solution is long-term unless you get the networks to spend the same amount of money for less games. I don't think that's going to change. I think if you cut the NBA down to 58 games, something like that, 60 games, you can make the money up in other ways. People act like if you lose 12 home games, how are you going to re- – or six home games. If you lose 12 games, you lose six home games. Right. How are you going to regenerate? Guess what? You put $3 on the end of each ticket, and there you go. You put 50 cents on the end of the soda that you're already charging me eight fifty four. You can charge me 9 and cut me down by 12 games. Uh, we're not going to notice as much. And the season now becomes more impactful. Well, the real reality is that a lot of the money is made from sponsorships and TV deals. Exactly. It's not even from the tickets. Exactly. So that whole, like, well, they're not going to cut down from 82 games because they want to open up the building 41 times. 
I don't think they care about that. Uh, Keith Smith, how improbable is it for one of these teams to win a championship? Denver never has done it. Miami is in their seventh NBA Finals. But both would be an improbable winner. We'll talk to Keith Smith from SpotTrack.com, who covers the NBA. Coming up next here on the Sports Bass, plus his thoughts on how Nick Nurse will mesh with Joel Embiid and would he mesh with James Harden. That's coming up next. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 345 Sports Bash. Promises, promises. Yes, indeed. Nick Nurse, promises, promises. He got a championship in Toronto. You're going to hear something Nick Nurse said a little later in the show that you might say, you know what? This guy has sold me. What does Keith Smith think about Nick Nurse? His thoughts on the NBA Finals? What's next for the Celtics? Keith Smith, SpotTrack.com, covers the NBA at Keith Smith NBA, and he is back right now. On the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. What's going on, Keith? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, all right. Well, we know the Celtics, the Sixers are out. The Heat have advanced. In your mind, this Heat team, 44 and 38, the 8 seed, they lose the play-in game. They're on the ropes in the game against the Bulls. Would you look at this team as an improbable NBA Finals, or are you not surprised based on, you know, they had a lot of injuries this year. Uh, what is your take on Miami making it to the Finals this season? Yeah, I mean, it's super improbable, right? Anytime you're you're the eight seed, that nobody ever expects that, right? So now now we're in, in a position where it is, you know, it's uh, – you know, they beat Milwaukee as major underdogs. They beat the Knicks as minor underdogs. Beat the Celtics as major underdogs. It's a huge surprise that they're here. But I think to a big point, I don't think they really care very much. Yeah, you look at Denver on the other side. I mean, they are the one seed, but they've been knocked out a bunch. And this is a team that's kind of unconventional. And when we have conversations throughout the course of the year, Keith, it's always about the coach. They want the coach fired. The coach has to go. Missoula stinks. Doc Rivers is horrible. They stuck with their coach for eight seasons. They've had a lot of disappointing losses. Do you find them to be improbable? Yeah, a little bit. It feels like they, they were building towards this point for a while. So that part I'm not super surprised about. I think, you know, there, there was a sense of are they going to be the new Jazz, right, where it's, you're pretty good, but you never really kind of get through in the end. And, and they finally did. You know, they, they, they finally popped all the way through. And, you know, again, very, very good team, very good, uh, you know, solid team that plays hard and, knows who they are, and I think have been pretty adaptable. And I think that's a big, big uh, chunk of how they got there. Yeah, so Heat and uh, excuse me, Heat and Nuggets, you can hear that game tomorrow night right here, game one on 97.3 ESPN. I fortunately slipped the Raptors in there because the Raptors' former coach, Nick Nurse, he's now the Sixers head coach. Keith, how is that fit in your mind? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good fit. I, I've seen some people saying, I don't know, man, Nick Nurse likes to play with these small lineups and go, you know, super switchable and all these things. And I think that forgets a few years ago, he won the NBA title with Mark Gasol yeah, as his center. And, you know, there, there wasn't probably a less switchable player, uh, you know, than Mark Gasol at that point in time. I think he's a good adaptable coach. I, I think it's a, a major problem. And I'm very much putting problem in air quotes that he's going to embrace to figure out how to build a team around Joel Embiid that functions well and, 
you know, can win a lot of games. I think it's a really good hire. Arguably, you know, he's the best coach available this, this offseason. You know, and Philadelphia got him, so that's a pretty big win, too. Yeah, in your mind, you know, why does he say Philadelphia is where he wants to be? I mean, he had an opportunity, it seemed like, to go to Milwaukee or to Phoenix or basically anywhere else. Why do you think he, he says Joel Embiid, or that's the reports anyway, um, is it as simple as, hey, Joel Embiid's the best player available? I'd like to get my hands on that. Uh, is, w- w- if you had a chance to pick your spot, would Philly have been the uh, the spot, knowing what's going on with Harden right now? Yeah, it would have been tough to choose between Philadelphia and Milwaukee, right? Because you're picking between Giannis and Embiid as your anchor, and then everything else is you're pretty good around them with potentially a lot of changes coming, right? We may have a lot of changes coming with the uh, you know whole deal around um, the super tax rules coming in and all those things that are designed really to break teams up and keep them from getting super expensive. So that's going to be a challenge you're going to have to work through as well. But I think, you know, for Nick Nurse, he's probably looking at him saying, Hey, we've got, you know, we've got Joel Embiid. We've got a stable, uh, front office led by Daryl Morey, who's done a good job building winning teams over and over again through different iterations of those teams. So I think for him, it feels pretty good to lock in to that and say, hey, I can win with this and I can go forward because even if Harden leaves, that's like a one-season reset, right? We're going to have to figure some stuff out for this first year, but we'll figure it out after that and we're going to have a ton of flexibility to put a winner around Embiid a year from then. Keith Smith, SpotTrack.com covers the NBA. Um, James Harden and Nick Nurse. How is that fit in your mind? Do you have a sense of the Nurse hire makes it more probable that Harden comes back, or does that deter Harden from returning? Yeah, I don't. The Harden returning part, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know how that'll work. I'm a little bit worried with the Nick Nurse part of it because I think with Nick Nurse, he is. If, if you mess around and you're not playing defense, he's had very little patience for guys who do that. He generally tends to yank them out, and he'll run with the guys that he knows are going to play hard, and they're going to defend the whole time. So if that part is going to be interesting to watch if Harden is back. I, I still tend to think James Harden's just going to make his decision around where does he want to play, and all the rest of it will sort itself out after that, whether that's Houston or Philadelphia. He'll figure that out. I don't know that this changes his mind one way or the other. Um in your mind, Daryl Morey, does he basically become the most important figure now for the Sixers if you bring back Harden or not? Because essentially you have to find a way to do something a little bit different, right? So we know they don't have a lot of wiggle room, but does Morey have to get creative? Or is it as simple as, look, we fired the coach because we thought the coach was the biggest problem. We're going to run it back with the same roster and keep the continuity. Yeah, you can't just run it back. I mean, you know, this is multiple years of losses in the second round. That we we you can't just put all that on Doc Rivers. And I'm not saying he's not owed a chunk of that blame because I think he is. But I think you you're gonna have to make tweaks around the edges. I don't know that you know as long as James Harden comes back, I don't know that you need to you know go uh, crazy as far as you know making massive changes around that. I think you know if Harden's back in the fold, they'll explore Tobias Harris trade to see if they can break that contract up into two, three players for depth reasons. Um, but I think for the most part, they're just going to kind of keep working and you know, see what they can do. Darryl Moore usually does pretty good 
around the edges of the roster and figuring those kind of things out. And he's going to have limited resources to work with if they re-sign Harden because they're going to be an extremely expensive team, of course. But I, I think for the most part, they're, they're in a spot where it'll just be, you know, well, let's see, now if Harden leaves, yeah, then you're looking at, all right, how do we turn that into, can we turn it into a signing trade where we can get something out of this? Can we turn it into a signing trade that's a three-team trade where we can do something like that? Those are going to be the things that he's going to have to work through. track.com NBA, uh, yeah. Keith Smith, we're talking a little bit about the offseason. The Sixers have signed, uh, soon to be, have hired Nick Nurse. Uh, if you were Daryl Morey right now, Keith, would you be more inclined to bring Harden back or let him walk? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I, it, I'm not bringing them back on a full max deal. I'm even for the four years because that's all they can do because of the over 38 rule, which is a pretty big equalizer here. That 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 fifth year at you know with eight percent raises tends to be the massive difference between a player resigning or leaving. Um, in this case, because he would trigger into the over 38, he's functionally limited to a four year deal. So what happens in this situation for the 76ers is. That's an awful lot of money for a guy that I'm not saying he didn't play well last year. I thought he should have been an all-star. I thought he should have garnered all NBA uh, consideration. But my bigger issue is he's slipping majorly defensively. He's not always there offensively every single night the way he used to be. He's not somebody who can be the heliocentric piece of your offense. So that starts to become a spot where all of a sudden it feels like, you know, we, we got to be really careful because I bet you if you lock into four years at the max, Years three and four are probably going to look pretty ugly on that, and that would be the part where I would get stuck if I'm Philly. If he is insisting on, hey, it's got to be the max for four years, or I'm going to take the four-year max from Houston, probably going to let him walk and then work with that newfound flexibility. All right, uh, Boston's got decisions, decisions. Uh, what happens with Jalen Brown? You mentioned the new CBA. You take up uh, that portion of your contract. You know Tatum's on the way. So what's the decision that Brad Stevens is wrestling with right now? Yeah, the, the decision is really in a couple years from now, can you lock into Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown combining for over a hundred million dollars? Um, that, that's, you know, that, that, to put it in the simplest terms, that's where we're headed, right? The, these guys would be two $50 million players if they resign, you know, both of them to the Supermax and, and we go from there. So that's the question that they've got to ask is with the new limitations on teams, can we put enough of a roster around these guys to continue to contend and win? Or, you know, is the better way, hey, we'll lock in the Tatum. He's proven to be the better, more consistent, more reliable uh, star player here. We'll move on from Jalen Brown, and we'll figure it out that way. I tend to think it's more likely it's going to end up in a spot where it is they probably pay him, and they'll figure it out down the line. The only thing you got to watch for is if they offer him the Supermax on July 1st at midnight, like they're able to. If they say, here's that that spot, then he turns around and says, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to sign that. That, to me, is we've seen one player turn down the Supermax. So far, that was Kawhi Leonard. They turned that into a trade, and that's where it went. Jalen Brown does that. You have to consider a trade at that point. Keith Smith, we got the NBA Finals tomorrow night. Who you got? I'm picking Denver in seven. There, there's a couple reasons for it. One, selfishly, at the end of the year, I start to get a little sad at this time of year because we're down to very few NBA games left. I want as many of them as I can get, you know, throughout the rest of the year. But I'm also at a point where, you know, I respect this Heat team. You know, they were supposed to lose in four or five to the Bucks. 
they won. They were supposed to lose in six or seven to the Knicks. They won. They are supposed to lose in four or five to the Celtics, and they won. I don't think they're going to beat Denver, but I wouldn't put it past them at this point. A lot of faith in those guys. And it's going to be fun watching kind of Nikola Jokic in the offensive ability he has against the Heat. And there's no better coach I would want to have there for uh, than Eric Spolcher if I get to go down into, you know, Plan B, C, D, and E to figure out how to slow down this Nuggets team. There's nobody I'd rather have. So that's going to be a really fun chess match and could be a really good, fun, competitive final. It starts tomorrow night right here on 97.3 ESPN. Keith, appreciate it, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, Keith Smith, com. Good conversation, good input on Nick Nurse. We're going to talk more Nick Nurse tonight with Michael Kasky Blomain from CBS Sports. David Sampson, the former president of the Miami Marlins, will join us at 5 o'clock. What goes into hiring a coach? How much input should and do players have? Would he go to Joel Embiid and ask for his input? That's coming up tonight. We get a team executive team president's perspective on that. But when we come back, Jeff Bosher, OTAs, football at four. The biggest areas of concern for the Eagles. And do they have too many new faces on the defensive side of the ball? Are they working on that at these OTAs? That's coming up. That's next on the Sports Bash. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosier. My personality is I, I want to win badly. I want to win more Lombardis for Philadelphia and our fans. we got the greatest fans around, and I will do everything possible. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. This is Football at Four. Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Yes, the Eagles are at OTAs. Jeff Mosher will be here in just a few minutes. We'll talk a little birds with him as the Eagles at OTAs. You know, this time of the year, the Eagles have two new coordinators, right? And I was thinking about this this morning. On Wednesdays, I'm a guest on Birds 365. So the guys were asking me about the OTAs and my thoughts on, you know, what do you get out of these things? And I said, you know, I, you know, the Eagles practice in OTAs less than any other team. Uh, the minimum, excuse me, the maximum I think of practices now or the minimum, is it? Or the maximum? I don't remember. Is 13. I think you 13 is the number. I don't know if that's the most you can do or the least you can do. That's the most you can do? Yeah. So the way it works is that you can't do more than that or the league will ding you. Yes. So the Eagles do six. They do the least out of every team in the league. Correct. And some would say if you get 13 opportunities, why wouldn't you take all the opportunities? And the Eagles are essentially saying, we don't think these things are all that important. The on-field. Now, they can use the classroom, and they can get into the classroom and show film, study the playbook, yada, yada, yada. But for whatever reason, the Eagles aren't using all 13 of their days. Now, one thing that I question this season, I want to ask Jeff Mosher what he thinks, but what is his biggest area of concern? Somebody asked me this question the other day. Okay, what to you is the Eagles' biggest area of concern? 
And, you know, you it's easy to say, well, linebacker, you got two new starters, safety, you have two new starters, you don't have a lot of depth, yada, yada, yada. But think about this. Andy Reid and his tenure here. A lot of the Eagles, you know, when we think about the Eagles and kind of the jumping off part of the new era of Eagles football, as we all know, it, it started with Andy Reid. Anything before Andy was the Eagles were not a good franchise before Andy Reid. They turned into like anything pre Jeffrey Lurie, the Eagles were just not a good franchise. Anything post Jeffrey Lurie or with Jeffrey Lurie because he's been the only owner, they've turned into a really good franchise. So, what are some of the things about the Eagles? You know, when I say concern, so someone said to me, "What are your biggest areas of concern?" And I didn't give them a position, Jeff Mosher. I gave them this. When Andy's team started to struggle, what happened? They started to get their coaches poached. You know, they lost continuity at the coaching position more so than anything. You know, you look back mm-hmm. at those Andy Reid teams, when did they start to struggle? Well, when you took Brad Childress and then you took Shermer and you took, you know, uh, basically started to kind of take each Harbaugh, um, who's the coach in Buffalo, McDermott. When you started to take Andy's coaches is when the team started to – kind of take steps back a little bit. So if someone asked me today, which is where I'm asking you, what's my biggest area of concern? I, I think I have to say, you have two new coordinators. How is that going to affect this team? And we're seeing the start of OTAs, and the Eagles are not utilizing the 13 days. They are using only six days. I'm a little surprised by that. Are you? Uh, no. I mean, it's kind of how they've been doing it for the last few years. And And to be honest with you, I've yet to figure this out. I know there's a bowling day. There might be two bowling days. So I don't know if that means it's four practices and two bowling days or six practices and two bowling days. But either way, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised because this is sort of the direction they've been going the last few years, even last year. And also, I knew the schedule about a month and a half ago, like most of us did. Um, but no, um, this is sort of the way they're going. In fact, on the podcast uh, that Adam and I did that's going to come out tomorrow morning, we sort of discussed, like, what is the future of OTAs? And, in you know, in 10 or 20 years, is it even going to be practice on the on the field? Are they going to be on the field even having a light practice? And I questioned. I don't know. I To me, it wouldn't shock me if 10, 15, 20 years, the most they do in OTAs is a walkthrough. Because if you figure they're going to have 18 games, they're going to get rid of those preseason games that they do play now. Maybe there'll be one. I don't know. It'll make training camp itself probably like six to seven weeks instead of three, right, or four. And I think the player is going to argue that's plenty of time to get ready for the season and learn the playbook. Um, but the, t- the, the the teams are going to argue that they need something in the offseason because it's not like baseball where you just show up and, and play a game. you got to learn the playbook. you got to learn your coaches. you got to know what they want. And so I think the happy medium will wind up being sort of like, okay, we show up, we do classroom, we do walkthroughs, but we're not like, you know, we're not doing full – full workout practices, even the way they are now with no hitting or tackling. Um, if I were to ask you the biggest areas of concern, what would your answers be? Well, I like what you said um, about losing coaches and replacing them. I think that that's 100% um, a concern, and it doesn't mean you're worried about it. You're just – it's on your radar. They've got a new defensive coordinator, a new offensive coordinator, and I think that's very fair. I, I would say the second thing – that sort of becomes abstract more than just pointing out this player or this position, right, would be 
handling success. Uh, we saw the 2017 team win the Super Bowl. You can argue that the 2018 team's roster was actually better, deeper, stronger. Um, but A, they had lost some coaches that certainly impacted Carson Wentz, right? With no Reich and no DiFilippo. Um, B, they brought some new guys in, you know, Michael Bennett was there, I believe, some other guys, and it just didn't have that. I don't think the locker room was the same. Things started to come out about Carson Wentz after he got hurt again, right? It just didn't, it's hard to be, the, uh, only a few teams have done it recently. The Patriots are one, the, the Chiefs are doing it now. You just, you see a lot of teams become something great and not be able to sustain that. The Eagles have the players to be able to sustain that. But do they, they, in the past, they have not handled success well. And you wonder, can they sustain it going forward this year now? I think it's a fair question. Um, I want to ask you this question, too. And another area of concern for me on top of the new coordinators is, do we think they just simply have too many new faces on the defensive side of the ball? Like, you're asking a team that went to the Super Bowl last year who had the number two defense in the league, and whether you like the coordinator or not, they statistically had the second-best defense in football. You are now replacing many of the names. This isn't a situation where you're keeping all the same guys and you hate it, the coordinator, and you're just bringing a new coordinator in. The new coordinator is now also having to pick at least two new linebackers, two new safeties, and most likely another player, well, definitely a tackle. So is there too many new faces on the defensive side of the ball? I think it's I think it's a fair point. You know, there were a lot of new faces last year too. I mean, Bradbury was new, and T, uh, uh, Kaiser White was new. Uh, Marcus Sepps wasn't new, but he was stepping into the starting spot for the first time. Hassan Reddick was new, so you did have some newness there. Um, but this is this is sort of different, Mike. I agree with you because it's all kind of funneled right up the middle. From oh, and Jordan Davis was new last year, but from Carter to your two linebackers to your two safeties. So, yeah, there's a lot of newness there, and it's right up the gut uh, of the defense. And like you just said, new defensive coordinator, figure it out. Now, they have talent. It's not like these guys are a bunch of bums, so that that helps them. They did Howie did a nice job of bringing some talent in, but sometimes that takes time to gel and everybody to understand each other. And um, I do think that that's, that's a fair concern. Uh, Clay Harbor was on the podcast, and I asked you guys to go check out the latest episode of Inside the Birds on all your uh, podcasting platform where Adam and Jeff were joined by former Eagle tight end Clay Harbor. Uh, and he talked about the culture of the Philadelphia Eagles and about the way, um, that that helps and cre- he credited that for the team's success. And I talked about it, you know, you go back to the Andy Reid era and there's two eras of Eagles football, kind of like, uh, Jeffrey Laurie and then pre Jeffrey Laurie. What does Clay mm-hmm. think and how does he think that has kind of, um, carried over from Andy to, you know, he had the little speed bump there with uh, Chip, but Doug and now where they are now. Yeah. You know, Clay pointed out that, you know, the, the best teams. And just for, by and, the way, just for disclosure, Clay played here in Philadelphia so he can speak to this. Right. But he, he also becomes a, an extra sort of expertise because he also played for Jacksonville prior to Doug. So it's a different regime he played for. Um, he played actually, I didn't even remember this, but he was on the Patriots. He was on the Lions. And then there was another team. He wound up playing for five different teams. So he's seen, and he's a, and he's a, you can tell just listening to him. He's an observant guy. So it's not like he just went to these places and played. He really sort of studied what they do. Uh, and now he does post game for the Bears. He's from Chicago. Uh, and he also does Jag- Jaguar stuff too. So he sees a lot of teams. He understands 
the landscape of the NFL. Well, real and, quick, because you you mentioned he played for Philly, which is a upper tier you know franchise. He played for Jacksonville, yes. which is thought to be kind of lower tier. New England, right. top of the heap at that time. Detroit, kind of bottom tier. New yeah. Orleans, kind of in the middle tier. So right. he has definitely seen the highest, the lowest, the in betweens. Yeah, and you know what he talked about is the be- the best teams that he's been on and, and observed are the ones that understand how to build from the inside out, which is a Andy Reid slash Joe Banner slash Jeffrey Lurie. I mean, it's really the Reid philosophy brought to those guys. Um, but building in the trenches, be strong in the defensive line, be strong in the offensive line, and you give the rest of your team a better chance to succeed as opposed to being really strong at wide receiver and being strong at safety but not having good defensive line or offensive line. In fact, he talked about the Bears, right? The Bears just signed T.J. Edwards, who he's gotten to know just from his time with the Eagles and and being a Bears postgame guy. T.J. Edwards is a good linebacker. And then they went and blow, you know t- spent a ton of money on Tremaine Edmonds from the Bills, Terrell's brother, right? Two great linebackers. And he's concerned about how, how well they'll be able to play not because he thinks they're not worth it, but because there's no defensive lineman in that Bears front that helps keep linebackers clean like there were with the Eagles last year. So Clay's biggest concern for T.J. Edwards is all of a sudden he's going to have just behemoth offensive linemen in his face all the time because the Bears don't have very good defensive tackles. Uh, so th- that observation led, talk, led to our discussion about how the Eagles may not do it perfectly, but they philosophically do it correctly by building from the inside out. Yeah, Jeff, uh, we're talking with Jeff Mosher inside the birds.com on, of course, football at four. Um, I, I'd like to hear, you know, let our listeners get a little bit more insight on what he thought of some of these new players like Sidney Brown, because I know he knew him pretty well. Kind of get your thoughts on where Brown might fit in and what he kind of sees for Brown, because I think he's an interesting guy because of the position that he plays and where we're talking about all these new faces. Yeah, so Clay went to the senior bowl. I mean, it's part of his thing the last year or two where he's trying to make himself into a better NFL analyst. So he's just taking it upon himself to go to uh, these events and act uh, and, and, you know, trust what his eyes tell him. And, you know, plus being in Chicago, he gets to see Illinois football. So he knew Sidney Brown could play in, a, you know, a, in a two-deep defense. He knew he had – was really smart, um, good traits, can do a lot of things well. At the senior bowl, he felt that he saw a coverage – acumen to Sidney Brown that maybe wasn't visible so much in the Illinois defense because their other safety who got drafted in the second round, I think by Washington was more of the coverage safety in that defense. Um, whereas Sidney Brown was asked to be more like a traditional safety, but he felt after watching Sidney at the senior bowl that he saw a guy who could pretty much do anything that the modern safety can do. Yes. He's only five foot, what nine, five ten. So obviously that'll be a little bit of a restriction, but um, physically and mentally, he's really impressed with with the kid uh, and his makeup. I know he put out a list, Clay did, of uh, his top tight ends. He is Dallas Goddard as the number two tight end in football coming into this season. He ranked him number two today. But I know on the podcast, he really talked a lot about Dan Arnold. Are you surprised that he thinks Arnold uh, or thinks so highly of Arnold? Do you picture Arnold being a factor on this team? I was stunned. You know, Adam first brought it up that Arnold could could contend with Grant Calcaterra for the number three spot. And I and I sort of it's not that I disagreed or argued with Adam. I just said, you know, usually a team's gonna gonna favor its draft pick and you saw Calcaterra last year uh when he got healthy 
And as the season went on, you know, be able to go across the zone, catch the ball, turn up field, you did some good things and even sort of adequately block at times, which I think is good when you're that late of a pick, a day three pick, and you can do that. And it means you might have a decent future. And I still think he's got that. But obviously, Dan Arnold has a, has a good vertical ability for a tight end. And Clay Harbor sort of shocked both of us because Clay, who, again, studies a lot of Jacksonville, and that's where Dan was, believes that Arnold can block a little bit better than maybe he's given credit for, too. So that's something that we have to see. It's not something Adam and I heard from personnel people, but maybe, you know, Clay has the eye for it, and we'll see. But if Arnold can block a little bit and add a downfield element, uh, explosive element to that number three wide receiver tight end spot, then I suppose it could be a pretty good competition to watch in camp. Yeah, that one is something that's interesting. And then, of course, you know, already at the OTAs, uh, everybody's looking at the new guys and everything. But Jordan Davis, a guy that was here last year, um, and I guess really, I don't know what to make of him. He didn't really make the impact that we had hoped he had made. I don't know what kind of impact you do hope he makes, given the position that he plays. So this is a good example of a guy that, you know, we've learned throughout many years of, of watching OTAs not to, not to overreact to OTAs. Uh, we've been told he's in good shape, which is great. Told his weights down, which is great. That's awesome. There's a lot of time between now and camp and then the season opener. And this guy's got a ways to go as far as you can be in shape and you can be down in your weight, but you still got to prove that you can play, you know, 20 to 40 snaps, 10 snaps in a row without losing your technique. And then over the course of a game, more snaps in the rotation because he really needs to be the guy who keeps those linebackers clean um, or else they're going to be in trouble up the middle uh, on defense against the run. And again, uh, this is what sticks out to me, which is surprising after what they went through last year. There's really no backup Jordan Davis on the team other than Noah Ellis, who I don't know who's going to make the team, but they really don't have a backup nose tackle that can get in there. I know Jalen Carter, they say he can play it, but I'm talking like a real mammoth run stuffing, two gapping nose tackle who, you know, let's say you're, your defense is on the field for, because the offense is moving it pretty well. Yeah. You know, you're facing Patrick Mahomes. Eventually, Jordan Davis has to come off the field no matter what shape he's in. You got to get your second straight line in there. Who's that guy that's going to be the Jordan Davis 2.0? Uh, yeah, and, and look, uh, obviously Jalen Carter being the story that he was, that he would have been maybe a top two, three pick, and then he falls, and you make the trade to get him. Uh, there's going to be a lot of eyes on him and what kind of impact he can make, and how are they going to use him? Is he going to play next to Fletcher Cox? Is he going to play with uh, Jordan Davis? You know, to try to recreate that Georgia stuff. I think watching. Uh, what they end up doing with him moving forward is going to be interesting, too. And I'm assuming, you know, this is where these OTAs, I think, are important. Getting a player like that into a routine of this is what your life's about to become. You know what I mean? 100%. 100%. OTAs are most important for rookies and newcomers. There's nothing Jason Kelsey is going to learn <laughs> in these six practices or he's going to do in these six practices outside of maybe developing a rapport with the new right guard, whether it's Tyler Steen or whoever. Um, just starting to get a feel for what that guy is like when it's not Isaac Samalu. But it's not like Jason Kelsey's – there, there's a whole lot more he's going to learn besides that. Yeah, Steen, uh, Jurgens, that's going to be something to keep an eye on. I always say this about OTAs, Jeff. You're not winning any jobs. You're not, you know, making the team. 
But I think you could be the guy that you might not be on the radar, but you might say, hey, this, you know, uh, I don't know, give me undrafted rookie free agent uh, who people like. You know what I'm saying? Like that type level of player. Hey, this guy really opened my eyes. I, I want to make sure that I watch him more when we get to camp in August because. Oh, 100%. That was Reed Blankenship last year. I mean, the, the, we were, we didn't know about Reed Blankenship until we noticed in training camp that he was running ahead of guys like, uh, Jaquaski Tart and everything like that. And then when we went and looked at, you know, into it, we were told, yeah, this guy, you know, we could see the light bulb went on him for him pretty early at OTAs. So we felt the confidence to be able to give him more, you know, more responsibility once training camp started. So yeah, you can, you can. And by the way, there have been some occasions where we would find out, you know, from a personnel person or in retrospect that a guy that they drafted, you know, high first round, second round that they could tell in OTAs was not the guy they thought they were getting. That has happened before. You never write a guy off after OTAs, but you can certainly see enough in tape that you're, that the coaches watch every day. In six, seven, eight, nine practices, used to be more. If the light bulb isn't coming on, or if a guy's physical ab- abilities don't translate right off the bat, that it could be cause for concern. Uh, Jeff Mosher, check out the latest Inside the Birds podcast. It is now out now with Clay Harbor, their special guest. Real quick, I was on vacation. I was on the plane when this happened. I was actually getting ready to take off. There was a report that the Eagles were working out DJ Fluker. Did anything uh, come of that? Just a workout, as far as we know. I don't believe any. There's not been a signing or anything like that. But, you know, obviously with the Eagles losing so many offensive linemen, from Dillard to, say, Amalu to uh, somebody else whose name I'm forgetting, they need some depth. I just thought it was an interesting name. He played at Alabama, was a first-round pick. But I don't know if you saw the video of him. And the guy, apparently he dropped, like, 40 pounds. I mean, he looked like he was in unbelievable shape. Uh, hasn't played in the league in like two years. Uh, yeah. I guess he could be a swing guy, play interior, play some tackle. I thought it made sense from that aspect and the fact that he had played for um, Jeff Stoutland. Stoutland at, uh, yes. You can tell I'm not in football mode. Jeff okay. Stoutland in the summertime. Uh, all right, Jeff Mosher at Jeff P. Mosher. I know you're a Phillies guy, Jeff Mosher. Are uh, are you in panic mode, or are you just kind of like, hey, it's May? Well, uh, I mean, it's really it's hard to accept and reconcile that this team is the same as last year's team, sort of like from a record standpoint. When every after everything they went through last September, October, and then getting better, uh, but you know, I don't have a person who like a, a. I don't think it's Tomper's fault. I don't think it's Dombrowski's fault, and I don't think there's a savior. I think the guys who you expect to play well and starts with your your two starting pitchers, really, and then your your shortstop, they got to play better or else this thing doesn't work. I agree with that because uh, I'm seeing a lot of Rob Thompson. They fired Girardi right about this time last year, and it's like, yeah, you just hired this guy, and now people want to mm-hmm. fire this guy. And I'm like, I can come up with – I came up with a list of at least ten things that are higher on my list of blame than Rob Thompson. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but man, this, it's really disappointing to see him start this way. I mean, it's really. Well, you signed Trey Turner for 300 million. He's hitting 240. Yeah. I mean, those type yeah. of things. You're like, come on. I was so excited to see how he fit into this lineup. And then I, I think the Hoskins getting hurt has really, and I'm not the biggest Hoskins fan in the world, 
But I no, thought but that he does him, bring something to the team. Well, right. I, I didn't like him hitting in the two hole. I was no. much more looking forward to him hitting four or five somewhere in that spot. And I think that is right. really decimated the middle of this lineup. Uh, I, I can't disagree. I can't disagree. They should be playing better, though. If, it, if, if Nola Wheeler and Suarez are not good pitchers, so far they haven't been. You're not making um, the playoffs. Then this, then yeah, there's really nothing anybody can do about that. They've just got to be better. Yeah. If Nola Wheeler and Suarez are not good, and Walker, who they signed uh, to, to yeah. be that guy, if Turner and Schwarber and you know this lineup is hitting one sixty six and two forty, I got news for you. Um, you can insert any manager you want in there. They're not making the playoffs with that kind of production. Right. So right now, but now I guess just going forward, Topper may have to push some buttons, and that's a manager's job to sort of manage it and figure it out, and hopefully he can do that. All right, buddy. Jeff Mosher. All right, man. Good stuff. OTAs continue this week and then to next week, and he'll be back for more football at four here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. When we come back, we got sound of the day. This sound of the day, Charles Barkley offers. You know, Barkley hilariously trashes the Celtics for their Game 7 loss, but I think it is more a sad microcosm of the NBA that we have. We blame coaches all the time. What Barkley says, I think, hits the nail on the head. Plus, when you hear what Nick Nurse has to say, this was at like a Q&A environment when he was with the Raptors. The answer he gives here, I think if you're on the fence about Nurse, We'll push you one way or the other. That's Sound of the Day coming up next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now, back Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app, 433 with you. Sound of the day, Charles Barkley. Good stuff from him. Nick Nurse, the new Sixers coach. If you're on the fence about Nurse, this might push you one way or the other. Josh Henning's my producer. He has today's sound of the day. We will start with the new Sixers head coach because I think that this is something that gives you some insight into his mentality, similar on one end of the spectrum to another, Jonathan Gannon had that open forum where he, you know, felt comfortable to speak his mind, we'll call it, to the Cardinal fans. Well, Nick Nurse had a similar forum about his run to the NBA championship and what was a valuable moment to him during that run to an NBA championship with the Toronto Raptors. This is former Raptors head coach and new Sixers head coach, Nick Nurse. One of my favorite parts of the championship run in 2019. I'm a rookie coach. I was hired to have success in the playoffs because the Raptors couldn't win in the playoffs. We get to the playoffs, game one at home against Orlando Magic, I think seventh seed. We lose. Kyle Lowry, one of our best players, the same, couldn't play in the playoffs. Great regular season. Playoffs come. He had zero points. Zero points. We're down zero, one, in my first playoff game as a rookie coach. Next day, I call Kyle into my office. I sit down and I say, well, guess what? You and I are both getting paid a lot of money to take all the 
we're going to have to take for the next 48 hours. And we're going to have to take it together. And we're going to have to figure it out. And I said, get ready for this film session. I'm about ready to show. Because I'm coming after you. And I'm coming after Kawhi. And I'm coming after Danny Green. And I'm coming after Mark Gasol. Because you guys got to play better. And he said, okay. And game two, we won by 38 points. We played defense like I've never seen a team play defense before in my life. And I told him after the game, we can go as far as we want to go now. You guys are here. You experience how good you can be. And we're ready to go. You know, the part of that that really stands out, obviously, is that he brings in Kyle Lowry, who's not the best player, but he's the longest tenured Raptor. He's kind of associated with the Raptors. And he said, we're going to deal with a lot of bleep. You and me, we get paid a lot of money. You scored zero points. I was hired because we couldn't win this game. We just lost game one. He didn't even remember the opponent. I think that's hilarious. But he says, and I think this is something that as good coaches should do. You might say to the leader of the team, hey, I'm going to call you out in the film session. So don't take it as you called me out. I'm telling you I'm calling you out. Be the leader and take it. Okay? Are you on board? So he has the respect of the best player. I wouldn't say the best player on the team, but he has the respect of the leader of the team. He got the leader on board. And when here you hear that is, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call Kawhi Leonard out. I'm going to call, and he basically went down the list of the biggest names on that team. Danny Green, I'm calling you guys out. You weren't good enough. I think if you hear that from him, and if that's his style here, this is where, to me, a coach can make an impact. Are you holding your players accountable for not performing? We always say, the coach, it's his fault, it's his fault. If the coach puts you in position and you miss the shot, you miss the shot. More on that coming up with Barkley in just a bit. But I hear that from Nick Nurse, and I hear a guy who's not afraid to call out his players and hold them accountable. I think one of the things also stands out to me is that he called Lowry into the office and not the other guys. He he was he was so observant to identify, I need to call this one guy in. Because if he's on board with me, everyone else is. Well, he picked the right guy. He picked the leader of the team, the guy who had been a Raptor. Kawhi Leonard's not a Raptor. Right. Marcus he was a mercenary. Saul. Marcus Gasol is not a Raptor. Correct. He was there for a couple of years. He found the guy and said, look, you have been a part of these disappointing losses. How do we make this better? And I think that's important to show that Nick Nurse is more than just a, he's really good at X's and O's. No. He's good at understanding who he asked to, who he has to say what to. He has the awareness and the and the self understanding of okay, if I tell this to Kawhi or Marcus Gasol or Serge Ibaka, it's not going to go over the same way as if I have this conversation with Kyle Lowry. You and I, Mike, may say, well, that's obvious, but it's not obvious to everyone because if everyone was obvious to, there will be a lot more head coaches who don't get fired. Yeah, uh, listen, again, he picked the right guy. He picked the right guy to say, I'm calling you out and everybody else. Right. So don't take offense to it as the leader of this team, as the leader – Don't let those guys say, how's he going to call me out? I'm giving you the heads up. And that's what a good coach does. You know, when you see somebody that's 
body language is bringing the team down. You find the person that you know that can connect with that guy. Or you find the person that you know that guy will respect what he has to say. Correct. And you say, look, so-and-so doesn't look like he's having his best day today. Go put your arm around that guy and tell him, hey, man, we need you. And, and that's the key. We need key. you. We need you. And I think a hearing when Nick Nurse says that, it gives you an idea that this guy is more than just – he's more than just one type of coach. He has more dimensions to him. Yeah. Um, I think Nurse is going to hold the best players accountable. And in this situation, the Sixers don't really – um, I mean, Tobias Harris, I guess you could say, is there. Kyle Lowry, the player who's not the best player on the team, but he's been here and is kind of like that leader for this team, I guess. Yeah, well, Tobias, you know, he has a lot of relationship with guys in the locker room. He's someone who's well known for, you know, helping young players deal with things. He's a guy who takes guys under their wing. He talks, you know, the, the non-star players. Yeah. I don't know. Um, we'll see if Tobias Harris is even here. Yeah, I have no idea if he's going to be here at all. I, I'm assuming he's not going to be here, honestly. So th- that dynamic may change. But still, the idea is is that this follows up on the report that you know Nick Nurse and Joel Embiid sat down and talked, and Embiid basically gave his blessing to the Sixers hiring Nurse before they you know went ahead and started working on a contract with him. So it's an interesting insight. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um, I, I enjoyed, like I said, if you're on the fence and you're like, ah, I don't know what to think of this guy. Is he? That's something that if you hear that, you're hoping and you're hopeful that he will hold the players accountable. Speaking of holding players accountable, Charles Barkley, a former player, a league MVP, pro uh, basketball Hall of Famer, dream team champ. Well, Barkley is tired of something he saw the Celtics doing in game, game seven loss of the Eastern Conference Finals. Charles Barkley, well, only saying what he can say the way he says it. Take a listen. But I got to say something, man. Why can you dumbass selfish make making my head hurt? Ernie, <laughs> let me tell you something. Glad I asked you about Jimmy Butler. I know, I but I, I can't let it go, man. I because know, I know. You got, if you just come to the game and say, we're just going to jack up threes, and if we win, we're going to win. If we miss them, we're going to lose. They're 4 for 21. They probably, I forget what they were in last game. 7 for 35. I mean, it's, it's, it's so bad to watch them play. There's no ball movement. There's no body movement. And it's just frustrating watching a team with this much talent just play stupid. You know, Barkley, he was asked a question, by the way, at the beginning about Jimmy Butler. Right. And he said, Jimmy Butler's played well, but I can't even comment on that. I need to comment on this. How many times do we talk about throughout the course of a year that it's a make or miss league? And basically, he's saying these teams are so dumb, they just keep missing. They're saying it's a make or miss league and they're missing and they're okay with it because they essentially believe that at some point they're going to shoot themselves back into the game. You get these wild 20-point games that all of a sudden shrink because you shoot yourself out of the game and then you shoot yourself back in the game. But it's a microcosm of the problem. David Sampson, who's going to be joining us coming up in just a little bit, and I'm very interested. You know, he's talked a lot on his podcast, Nothing Personal uh, is the podcast. 
And he's talked a lot about make or miss, you know, and we're going to talk to him about the, what is the process of hiring a coach? What goes into hiring a coach? How important is the coach? What is the importance of the coach? You're a team president. What are you looking to hire? A, a tactician, an X and O guy, an in-game guy, a disciplinarian, a culture setter. What are you looking for? And in one of his recent podcasts, he talks about how the league is essentially make or miss and everything else is, is, doesn't even matter. That's essentially what Barkley just said right there. That it's mind numbing that you're watching a game that has become who can make more shots. And it sounds like, isn't that the objective of the game? But it's laziness also. I think what bothers Barkley is he's saying, look, if you're not making your threes, you got to do something else. It's the, it's the lack of intuitiveness. It's the lack of ingenuity. It's the lack of accountability to say, hey, I got to be better. How can I pick my team up and help them get out of this situation? You know, the criticism of Jalen Brown last 48 hours has been, Jalen Brown didn't do anything to pick his team up when Tatum got in. And he admitted that. Well, it's great that he admitted it, but what is he going to do about it? Jalen Brown did say, hey, when Jalen Brown got hurt, I didn't step up. Right. It's great that you admit that, but what do you do about that after the fact? What is he going to do moving forward? And I think for a guy like Barkley who says, you know, I've played the game, I've covered the game, I'm tired of these guys telling me after the game, oh, you know, I should have done better. And it's like, well, no, you know, bleep Sherlock, you got to play better in the game. And it's the idea that, you know, one of the frustrations that someone like me had with Harden in games six and seven is that where is the awareness? I, 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 I understand the frustration in what you're saying. My question is, <laughs> this is like everything. Some days you're good and some days you're not. We expect that these guys are going to be good every single day. And when they don't play well on a particular day, we question, how could that be the case? Are you good every single day? Do you have your best day at every single I feel time? Like, I feel like that's not that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a guy having a bad day. We're having a, we're talking about a guy who's who's having the bad day and doesn't try to fix the situation. Well, that's our opinion. We well, don't if, know that he's not trying to fix the but situation. But all we have is what we see. Well, and you don't get we, to go to their practices. No, but it's not going to their practices. Like in the game, okay, game six and seven, for example, Harden, if you're not making shots, set your teammates up. Why are you pounding the ball into the hardwood a gazillion times and burning down the clock and everybody standing around watch you? It's things like that that... For a guy like Barkley, he's been on teams where he has said, hey, I'm not having my game, so I'm going to pass it to Kevin Johnson on the sun and let him heat up. I think the problem is, is that for a guy like Barkley, he looks at the players and say, guys, I I was a superstar. When I wasn't playing well, I found a way to get my teammates involved, and that's how we won games. Uh, coming up, Sports Bass Live 97.3 ESPN. I saw this story today. I almost fell out of my seat. The salary of the highest paid mascots. What would your ballpark guess be? More than I make. Okay. <laughs> I don't. 
I, I, I can say this. I, I, my guess would be they got paid by the game. Some of these guys, like, hey, here's two hundred bucks a game. Right. You will be shocked to hear what the highest paid mascot makes. Can't wait. Sports Bash Live. That's on the other side. Don't go away. 97.3 ESPN. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 452. Um, I was shocked to read this story today. Sports Business Journal, according to the study, the salary of the highest paid mascots. Now, I have been a mascot before in 1998 when I was an intern. That was part of the intern's job. They had to wear the mascot of the radio station. I had to be Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and the Easter Bunny. I went to, it was mascot day at the Philadelphia Zoo, and it was like all the different mascots, like the Philly Fanatic, the Sixer, I think at the time it was the rabbit. Um, and you were there. And I was there. So I know what the mascot goes into doing the mascot thing. The highest earning, the standard rate is $750 an hour, which I did not get. <laughs> <laughs> or you might still be a mascot. The standard rate is $750. Some do 500 If you wanted Rocky, who is the... Denver Nuggets mascot to come to your birthday party it is $400 for 30 minutes or 750 for an hour. Wow. Good for those guys. The salaries of the highest paid mascots in the NBA. Number 5, Hugo the Hornet. For the Charlotte Hornets makes 100 grand a year. Wow. Number 4, Go the Gorilla, the Phoenix Suns Gorilla, makes $200,000 a year. Good for him, man. That's what I say. Benny the Bull, the Chicago Bulls mascot, makes $400,000 a year. Of course he does. Harry the Hawk, the Atlanta Hawks mascot, makes $600,000 per year. I think he's overpaid compared to the other guys. And the number one highest paid mascot in the NBA is Rocky, the mountain lion of the Denver Nuggets, who comes in at $625,000 per season. And now he gets to to perform in the NBA Finals. He gets to perform in the NBA Finals. That's incredible. Six hundred. And $25,000 for Rocky, the Mountain Lion. How many people do you think actually knew that Rocky, the Mountain Lion, was the mascot before we had that list? Don't know. <laughs> Somewhat dejected. <laughs> You're the wrong profession, right? That's what happened. Uh, David Sampson is the host of Nothing Personal. It's called Nothing Personal because he says what's on his mind, but don't take it personally. He was the team president of the Miami Marlins, won a World Series, helped build a stadium, has hired coaches, managers, I should say, in baseball. What goes into that? How important is the player's input? And what does he think about Nick Nurse coming to Philadelphia. Plus, what 
What does he think about where the Phillies are? At what point of a baseball season do team executives hit the panic button? This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. All right, 5 o'clock, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Final hour of my show. David Sampson is back. The fans continue to ask. So he is back for more. He's the host of Nothing Personal. You can check it out on the YouTube channel and any podcasting platform. And I keep finding different reasons that I want to ask him so many questions. And he's always willing to answer them. And he's kind enough to be back. The former team president of the Miami Marlins and uh, host of Nothing Personal is back here on the Sports Bash. David, welcome back. Oh, happy to be here. How you doing? It's becoming like a weekly thing with us. Yeah, man. Well, every time like something happens, you know, and you're discussing a lot of the topics here, the hiring of a coach or manager. You spoke about it on nothing personal. The Sixers get Nick Nurse. And the big thing here has been we fight a lot about this. I thought you brought it down a big time. How fans think about coaches and what the executives think about coaches. We take texts and calls all the time. Fire the coach. It's the coach's fault. The coach is horrible. And I say, well, the executives don't think the same way you do. What do you guys think about a coach when things aren't going well? So we're trying to make sure that we evaluated our team correctly. And we want to make sure that our coach or our manager is not making a good team bad or a great team good. Ideally, a coach can make a good team great. Very few coaches can make a bad team great. Some can maybe make a bad team good, but not likely. So what you really are looking out for are coaches who have a negative impact on the play and the results. That's the first thing. The second thing we're looking at is the coach's relationship both up and down, meaning up to the front office and down into the locker room. Because in this day and age, when there's so much front office involvement in what goes on on the field, the coach is really responsible to communicate very well with both players and GM president owner, and not very many coaches can do that, actually. So how much do you guys look at in-game? They're in game, you know, coach, uh, fans watch a game on Tuesday night in February or in a baseball situation, you know, uh, Wednesday night in May. Uh, Rob Thompson, people all of a sudden want him fired. I mean, it's like they just hired this guy to replace the other guy you wanted fired. So fans obviously have irrational knee jerk reactions, but how much do you guys look at what their in game is as opposed to preparation off days and how they handle stuff so we have a game plan going into a game we know what the pitching plan is we know exactly who's available we know how many pitches a pitcher is available we know who's going to start a particular game because we're sending the lineup down and going through the lineup with the manager of who we want playing where and where through the where in the lineup so it is not as often as you think that there are in-game decisions that are made where the front office is looking down and saying, well, I have no idea why that's happening. The overwhelming majority of the time, we've gone through different scenarios. So even, for example, an injury. If a pitcher goes down in the first inning, not for lack of performance, but because he gets injured, we know who the long guy is who's going to be put into that particular game given that particular opponent. 
if you've got a pitcher who is taken out because of performance. It's your ace, but he only makes it one time through the order and gives up six runs. We will have discussed pregame. Here's what we're doing. We don't want that pitcher. Say it's anybody. Say it's Zach Wheeler. We don't want him going five innings if he throws 45 or more pitches in any inning early in the game. So literally to that level of detail, we're going to talk it through. And if there's a time where there's a mutiny, where the manager does something that we did not pre-approve or that we don't understand why he did it, that becomes a data point in our evaluation of that manager in terms of during game. Even the use of the bullpen, we've gone through and mapped out who we want ideally in the seventh, eighth, ninth, who we want in the seventh if it's maybe our closer, because if you're at a certain part of the lineup because of how the game goes, then we want the closer used in the seventh or eighth. All of that is discussed pregame. It's all done not just with analytics, but with discussion. And if managers don't follow through on that plan, then you get a problem. Right. So that's the in-game part. Yes. The out-of-game part, which Can you Can I just ask you a question on Sorry. that real quick? No, no, I, I just want to interject because... I think the fans think that the managers are making all of these in-game decisions. You're saying, and I've tried to explain this to people from people that I've talked to who cover teams, is that the front office is involved before the game on these in-game decisions. Is that a Marlins thing when you were there, or is this league-wide? League-wide. It's not even, it's not even a question. Anyone who says that just hasn't run a team before. I promise you that the front office is involved and goes through pre-game what the plan is and how it's going to work. We're with the manager before BP, after BP, right until the manager takes the field for the anthem. Then we're back in the manager's office after the game where we'll talk through what went on during the game that may not have been what we planned for, or maybe the decision was made that was different than what we had spoken about. Or we'll talk about evaluating players who are not executing the way we need them to and talk about whether they need a rest or whether they need to be sent down. We'll talk to managers about all those things, but managers are the ones who really execute the plans that come from the front office. So Schwarber's hitting 166, Turner's hitting 240, David Sampson's with us, by the way, from Nothing Personal. Check out his podcast. You get this kind of insight on how teams are run. You guys will put that pull Rob Thompson and say, hey, Schwarber's at 166, keep playing him. Or maybe you should let him, maybe we're, we should sit him a day or two. Yesterday, for instance, Bryce Harper sits for the second day. They were off Monday, but he was not in the lineup yesterday, and they did not pinch hit him. David Sampson tells Rob Thompson, don't use him at all today. Just let him sit. Is that how it goes? That's exactly how it goes because it's either an off day or it's not an off day. When you ha when you're resting a player because you don't want that player to start, there's two directions you go. Either the, what we call it is a spike day or a shoe day. An off day that's a shoe day means you're not getting in the game. You can leave your spikes in the clubhouse. You're not pinch hitting. You're not pinch running. You're not pitching. If you're a pitcher, you are not available no matter what happens. A spike off day is when, hey, where are your spikes? Because if there's a situation in the late innings where you are the tiner go-ahead run, we're going to get you an at-bat, so be ready for that. Because it changes the player's mindset. It's not an off day for a player if they're thinking about late inning matchups or facing the team's closer or thinking they've got to be mentally prepared to perform. An off day is when you can let your body and your mind have the day off. 
Uh, David Sampson's with us getting great insight on some of the things. When you look at the Phillies, they're 25 and 29. I heard you mention yesterday in Nothing Personal that, hey, you got to start figuring out, you got to start turning the corner here a little bit. Do you look at this Phillies team and say, hey, there's a lot of problems that are not fixable? So I fell victim to something that happened in 2003 where we started, I believe, 19 and 29 and went on to have the best record in baseball from May 15th or May 25th on and went on to win the World Series and then chased that for the rest of my career, hoping that every slow start could be remedied by either a managerial firing or by a team just turning it on and getting hot at the right time. What you saw happen with Philadelphia last year, that's very hard to repeat. And so when I say it's getting late early, what I mean to say is that there are teams who can recover from being under 500 around Memorial Day, but the majority of time you don't. And so the concern is expanded playoffs. It gives you that false feeling. The reason why I love expanded playoffs is that I want more teams to be in the race longer because it's better for fans. But the downside of expanded playoffs is players and managers and sometimes even GMs say to me, hey, we're good. It's we're fine. We're going to be able to turn it on. Don't you worry. But the majority of the time, it doesn't work that way. It's really hard in baseball to do it. So I do have a level of concern over Philadelphia, though not to the point where I would think of firing Rob Thompson. Yeah, because um, you said something the other day, and I agree with you about Pittsburgh. You look at Pittsburgh where they were, they come back to life. Philadelphia, 25 and 29, they're still only two and a half games out. But this is where that third wild card kind of keeps you feeling like, eh, but you got Schwarber 166. I got Turner 240. I got Nola 459. I got Walker 551. I got Harper who missed half the season. I got Suarez who's just back. How much does the team look at that and say, Turner's not going to hit 240. Schwarber's not going to hit 166. Nola's not going to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like to where they, where they talk themselves into where, when do they feel is the place that they can turn the corner? God, I am so good at talking myself into something. When you're an executive and you've got Trey Turner hitting 240, you say to yourself, there is no chance that he ends the season at 240. And then you get to August and you say, wow, now it's really got to start happening because now he's only hitting 252. But to get, as the season gets longer, to go from hitting 240 on May 31st to hitting 280 on July 31st, if you do the math on that, He's got to be spectacular to get his average up that much. So what you really then do is break the season down into different months. If I'm Philadelphia and I'm Dombrowski, forgetting the fact that he loves to be a, a buyer and he loves to spend money and he's won, and I'll grant him that. But at the end of the day, you set a date. You look at your schedule and you set a date and say, if we don't do X by Y date, then we are going to do the following and it's really hard to stick to it because the expanded wild card, you feel like you're only a couple games out, you can do it. But at some point, you have to not be delusional. And for me with the Phillies, if we get closer, if they're under 500 and we're toward the trade deadline, I think you have to start considering not being a se- not being a buyer, but instead being a seller. How hard is that to do when you're a team that this season was chips in the middle of the pot? They went to the World Series and then thought that they added to this team. You spent three hundred million on Turner. You went out and got Walker. You went out and got bullpen pieces. 
I was the one who said that Trey Turner was the number one offseason signing. I'm on record as saying that I loved him on Philadelphia. I thought it was going to be very helpful to them. And I love the fact that they went out and spent the money. But I also recognize that the way John Middleton, the owner of your team, is, he doesn't like giving up ever. And as fans, you appreciate that. But in terms of the overall health of the organization, when you have a delusional owner or a delusional GM, that actually can hurt you in the long run because you don't give up when you should in order to say it's not happening for us now. And I would encourage fans to be understanding of owners and GMs who are willing to acknowledge what their team is versus what they thought it would be. Uh, David Sampson is the host of uh, the podcast Nothing Personal. You can watch it live at 8 a.m. on the YouTube channel, or you can get it on any podcasting platform. There's a ton of reaction coming in. Tom says, this conversation is making it seem like the manager is a figurehead with no control over the team or the game whatsoever. Is that a fair comment from the fans? I understand why someone is saying that as a result of what I'm saying, and I don't want to put it that way. What I will say is it's no surprise that GMs are now making more than managers. It didn't used to be that way, as you know. Back in the day, managers always made more than GMs, and now it's firmly the other way. And it's the other way for a reason. But I don't like the word figurehead. You won't hear me use it on nothing personal. That is an insulting word. That is managers have a very important role controlling the clubhouse, managing up and down as we previously discussed. So I would not say figurehead at all. But I would say that there is way more front office involvement than you may think. Okay, so I want to get your thoughts, David, for our listeners the Nick Nurse hiring. What goes mm-hmm. into hiring? What is the questions? How does that happen? Players' input. There's been some reports that, hey, they met with Joel Embiid and he signs off on this. I know you're shaking your head and I listen to the pod, so I know a little bit how you're feeling. But I think our listeners need to hear it from someone who worked in that role rather than this jabroni who talks on the radio. Well, I'll tell you that I'm a professional manager hirer because I kept getting it wrong. So we had to keep firing managers and keep hiring them. So I'm pretty good at that. So let me tell you what the first question is that we ask before we start interviewing. Do we want a manager with experience or are we going to give someone his first shot? That's the first question. When you have a team that lost in the semifinals that you believe should be doing better, and that it underperformed when it mattered and could not win the big game under the previous coach. You make the decision, I'm going with experience. I do not want to go with a first-time coach and start over because we're not rebuilding this team. We are built to win now. I want someone who's been there. So then you've made that decision, which is your first. Then you get to the part about what does Nick Nurse add? What's the value? Forget the fact that he plays his guys too many minutes. Forget the fact that he won the year he won with Toronto and hasn't won since. Forget all that. What is his ability to work with Joel Embiid? And I criticized meeting with players during the interview process. The Bucks did it with Giannis. The Sixers did it with Joel Embiid. And when I am hiring a coach, I want the players to respect the coach, but I need the coach to be the adult in the room. I don't, the players are not interviewing their GM. Why are players getting the right to interview their coach? It makes no sense to me. And here's why. In the NBA, 
coaches now realize that if you don't have buy-in from your star, you get fired because owners choose the player and not the coach. And it didn't used to be that way, but it is now. Look at Trey Young in Atlanta. He's going through coaches like I go through water when I'm running. And that is what they've chosen to do is go with Trey. And now what the Sixers are doing is saying, Joel, we need to have your buy-in before we bring someone of experience in. Tell me that you can work with him. But I ask you this before we go. What does one lunch tell you about living with someone for six or eight months, traveling with them, having them in your family, which is what a clubhouse is like? It's like going, it's like marrying someone after a first date. It doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't get it right the majority of the time. So are the Sixers just placating Embiid by letting him sit down? Or did they really take what he had to say as, as a gospel in terms of who they were going to hire? I certainly hope that's not the case. Nick Nurse is very qualified. And frankly, having Joel's input is less than necessary in my opinion. So if you have a star player that's a free agent is hiring a coach, part of the way to lure that player to stay and or maybe push him out the door. I'm thinking over 18 years I was in the game. Like, give me a minute here. I don't know how much time we have till commercial. The number of times a player, when we were trying to sign them as a free agent, said, I'm sorry, who's your manager going to be? Zero. (laughs) They wanted to know how many years and how many dollars. Every time, every player. That doesn't mean I blame them. It doesn't mean they're wrong. But if you're telling me that you think that more free agents are going to come because of Nick Nurse or free agents are not going to come or Harden's going to leave or stay because of Nick Nurse, it's absolute ridiculousness. So Nurse is the guy that they hire. And if they bring Harden back, inconsequential to the hire is what you're saying. If Harden likes the deal, he's here regardless of the coach. But there's a lot of reports. You could have been the coach. (laughs) If they offer Harden four years, $200 million, which would be so absurd, I can't even tell you. You could be the coach and Harden would say, we got this, baby. Right. Well, because there was reported, you know, that he liked Mike D'Antoni and that was uh, who he would kind of prefer. They don't even talk to Mike D'Antoni. We never interviewed a manager because we had a player come up to us and say, please interview or hire this manager. Yeah. It just never would have happened, and I don't believe it's happening now. Uh, I, You know, we were talking right before you came on about the nature of the games today, and I think you said this on the podcast. Charles Barkley said it the other night. This team just keeps shooting threes. You're missing all these threes. You know, the game has become such a make or miss nature. And that's why I always say, like, people blame the coach all the time. But it's like, you can't, the coach didn't go nine for 41 from three-point range the other night. And by the way, the Miami Heat hit 50% of their threes. When when they're going to hit 50%, you're going to win, period. And when the Celtics are going to shoot the way they did, they're going to lose. Listen, it used to be the coaches would actually call plays. You know, two up, one down. There'd be all sorts of stuff going on. I never see players looking over at the bench anymore to see what play is being called. It's isolation with five guys standing outside the three-point line. Drive in, draw the defense, kick it out, and hope the shot goes in. I don't need any genius to call that play. Pretty much. Uh, and as I, you know, you talk about in baseball, what I say in the NBA, the impact now, I think... A guy like Spolstra is very uniquely different. The problem is every fan 
wants their coach to be Spolstra and only one Spolstra exists. The rest of these guys, I don't know how much impact they have on wins and losses. To me, they are more culture setters, and the preparation they set leading into the games matters more than what happens during the 48 minutes. I completely agree, right? We talk about culture. We talk about understanding what it is to manage up and down. And we'll go full circle in this segment. What Eric Spolstra really knows how to do is deal with Pat Riley and Jimmy Butler. And those are two different skill sets needed to deal with those two things, those two, those two men. And Eric Spolstra is someone who understands what his role is. But if you look at what the Heat do, it is quite fantastic, except they shot 14 for 28. So again, I could have coached the Heat, and I'm not taking anything away from Eric. He is so good at what he does. Hall of Fame type good. But when your three-point shooters are shooting that way, you're not going to lose a game. Uh, David Sampson, you can check out the podcast, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, nothing personal. By the way, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you enjoyed? My friend's name is Maisel, so I thought about watching the show. I never heard of it. And then I heard you bring it up, and then I asked him, did you watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? He said, well, of course I did. How could you not? And I, I thought because I'm Jewish that I should watch it, but it turns out that you don't have to be Jewish to laugh or to understand the emotion of the series. It is brilliantly written, and, I, and I'm and i so sorry the writers are on strike, and I'm not pro-union in any stretch, but writers deserve way more credit than they get because the words on the page that are brought to life by the actors, the words are just brilliant in Mrs. Maisel and the way it's done, and Ted Lasso, which just ended, same thing. The writing of that show is simply first class what's the platform for marvelous mrs Maisel? where can i get this uh amazon. amazon go on amazon it's got five seasons i believe and you will not be disappointed it will be a binge that you will love i'm looking for something new i'm in season six of better call saul did you watch it so no i watched breaking bad and breaking bad is one of my top 10 all-time shows but i never got into better call saul did you try I'm it watch uh, no, I've not tried it yet. For whatever reason, the character, Odenkirk's character, I never was emotionally invested with him. So I wasn't that interested in a spinoff with him. But I'm also partial against spinoffs because I love MASH. I wouldn't watch after MASH. Right. I don't I love Fletch. I'm not going to watch Fletch Lives, which is the sequel. Mm -hmm. So sequels and spinoffs, I have something constitutionally against them in general. <laughs> but uh, there are exceptions. But. Not many. <laughs> David, uh, I always appreciate it. We get great feedback. The feedback is continuing to come in on this uh, conversation, and it's great to hear from a uh, former team president's perspective on how some of these things go down. I implore the listeners to watch uh, Nothing Personal 8 a.m., or if you, 8 a.m. is not good for you, you can listen to the podcast. David, I hope to do it again. All right. Take care. Have a great day. All right. David Sampson, everybody. Sampson is back uh, here on the show because you guys requested him and we had stuff that we wanted to talk about. And uh, he broke it down very, very well. Listen, I can tell you guys what I hear from executives and scouts. And you might say, I don't like your opinion or I don't believe you. Well, there's a guy who was a team president of a major league baseball team that won a World Series. And he just told you. These things are planned out before the game starts. So Bryce Harper doesn't play yesterday, and he, I love what he said, it's a shoe or spike day. If it's a shoe day, you're not playing at all. If it's a spike day, eh, we might use you to pinch hit. 
Well, yesterday was a shoe day for Bryce Harper. And that's not the manager's decision. That's everybody getting in a room before the game and saying, we're not playing Bryce Harper today. Further reason why Rob Thompson is reason 15 on my list of why the Phillies are struggling right now. When we come back, Michael Kasky Blomain is going to talk a little Sixers and Nick Nurse. Don't go away. Now, back for Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 5.30, Michael Kasky Blomain from CBS Sports is here to give us some thoughts on what he thinks Nick Nurse might do for the 76ers. You know, we were talking earlier, if you think that Doc Rivers was the problem, you fired the coach, wouldn't you just run everybody back and say the coach was the problem, it wasn't the players, we fired the coach. So does Nick Nurse mean that everybody's back and they run it back again? Let's bring in Michael Kasky Blomain from CBS Sports who covers the Sixers and the NBA. He's with us right now on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. MKB, what's up, my brother? MKB, you got me. I think his mic is off. Mike, oh, there you go. What's up, brother? How you doing? All right, man. Well, Nick Nurse, give me your initial thoughts on the decision to bring him in and what he might add to this Sixers team that they were missing. Yeah, Mike, I think, um, you know, the main difference to me that jumps right off, you know, with the hire as soon as it happened was the fact that Nick Nurse has been lauded as, you know, a pretty smart X and O adjustment uh, coach, like over the course of his career, which is, you know, something that was never known as, um, you know, a strong suit for Doc Rivers. So I think that's going to be a, a pretty drastic change to go from, you know, Doc, who was more known as a player coach and a guy that was like a locker room, you know, leadership camaraderie type guy to nurse who is doesn't have the playing and coaching experience that Doc has, but has, you know, more of an analytic um forward-thinking approach to the X and O's of the game. So I think that right off top is going to be, you know, it's something I think that attracted the Sixers to Nurse, and it's going to be a big part of the difference between those two coaches. Uh, obviously, Nick Nurse is a defensive-minded guy. He flips his defenses up. He changes around. How does the personnel that we think the Sixers might have, obviously Harden is up in the air, how will that translate to what he likes to do? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, obviously, because he's never had a, a guy like Joel. A lot of what the Raptors did, uh, you know, they switch a lot, get out in transition. Athletic two-way wings is kind of what they've been known for over the past few years since Kawhi left. Uh, versatility, things like that, which is another thing that the Sixers haven't been known for. Um, obviously, I think it'll be interesting to see how he uses Joel on that defensive end. Obviously, he's not going to have him as a guy that's out switching on the perimeter constantly. Um, you know, with the guy that protects the rim as well as Joel does. But I think we'll see, you know, a lot more versatility on the defensive end from the Sixers. I wouldn't be surprised if the front office this offseason looks to add, you know, a few more of those guys in the vein of a, you know, like a McDaniels, a guy that's two-way type player that can switch and, you know, guard a few different positions based off what uh, Nick liked to do in Toronto. But the main thing I think will be obviously building a defense where Joel can play where he's most comfortable which is you know as a rim protector and in the paint but also um you know getting out on the perimeter switching raptors were big close out hard close out team try to you know eliminate three-point shots and force guys to drive into the paint where joel will be posted up so you know there's a lot of, of things that 
Nick has at his disposal. And it'll be interesting to see how he uses, obviously, a guy like Joel, which is something that he hasn't had um, in, in Toronto during his five years there. Michael Kasky blomain from CBS Sports is here to uh, break this down. Uh, what does this, in your mind, Mike, mean for James Harden? Obviously, uh, he's a big decision. Uh, I don't know if there's a right answer whether he should come back or let him walk, but does this hiring impact that at all? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike, and it's a big one. And I think it's it's a little tough to tell and read between the the lines with James Harden right now. I think a lot of what you hear in terms of his interest in going back to Houston could potentially be a leverage play, which I think you and I discussed uh, last week when I was on. But, you know, the one coach, obviously, that I think really would have swayed things, you know, if the Sixers went ahead and hired Mike D'Antoni to be the next head coach after Doc, I think that would have obviously been, you know, an indication that they were – James would be coming back and it would be a situation where they were really looking to appease him, bringing in the coach that he had a lot of success with in Houston. But outside of the the D'Antoni hire, I thought it was really kind of difficult before they even hired Nurse to tell how any of these individual choices, whether it was Nurse or Monty Williams or Frank Vogel or, you know, any of the other guys that they were looking at, how that would have impacted James. I think at this point, it's I don't know if the coach is really something that's going to impact his decision a lot one way or another. I think the finances of the contract, obviously, and the opportunity to win, at least according to him, which is what he said the past couple of times. I don't think it hurts, obviously. I think Nurse is a guy that's respected. Obviously, he's had success in the past few years. I don't think it's a situation where this hire hurts uh, their chances to bring back James Harden, but I don't know how much it moves the needle in the, you know, the positive direction in that regard either. In your opinion... The Harden decision obviously looms, but how big of an offseason does this now become that you have Nurse in here for Daryl Morey and the work that he needs and how creative he needs to get this offseason? Yeah, definitely, Mike. I think there's, you know, I wrote on CBS this morning how Nick is a good first step for the team and brings, you know, a new voice, which is always good, a championship pedigree, recent, you know, playoff experience, but that the work for you know, Philadelphia's front office is far from over at this point. I think you can't run it back with this, uh, the same roster that you had last season. Specifically, I think you need an upgrade at the wing position. I don't think you can run it back with Tobias Harris and P.J. Tucker as your two starting uh, forwards in the NBA today. I think you need more reliable, you know, shooting and floor spacing, a little bit more athleticism from at least one of those two spots. So I think that's, you know, a priority regardless of, of if, uh, James Harden returns or not, I think the Sixers need to upgrade those wing spots, get maybe a little bit younger, more athletic. Um, looking to trade Tobias, obviously, with one year left on his deal, now an expiring contract, is something that I'm sure the team will and, and should look into. Potentially, that could be a way to you know, maybe get a little bit younger, add a little bit more depth on the perimeter, a little bit more reliable floor spacing, things like of that nature. But, you know, there's, you know, other than Joel, obviously, and probably Tyrese Maxey, it's it's really tough to say who could potentially be back from uh, this roster next season. There's a lot of free agents uh, coming up from the Sixers this summer, so I think the the front office will be busy. And I think it's obvious that the you know the coaching change was good, but I think the roster office uh, also needs some upgrades if the team's going to take a step forward next season. I don't know that there is a right answer to this question, but knowing what Nurse has done in in Toronto and how he likes to do things. Is Harden a better fit for him, or is or is he would he be better without Harden here? I know that's a weird like way, but like, do you think Nurse would fit in better if he didn't have Harden, knowing that he likes to play defense, or do you think that it would be more beneficial for him as the coach to have Harden here? 
Uh, that's a great question, Mike. And at the end of the day, it's always up to a coach to maximize, you know, the talent that they have. And I think any coach would want to have a guy like James Harden. But at the same time, he has obvious limitations that kind of clash with what Nurse looks to do, like you said, defensively uh, in terms of getting out in transition, playing off ball. And I think there's, you know, fair points to be made that bringing Harden back might not be the best fit for the Sixers. I think that would have been the case regardless of who the coach was. Uh, after the way things shaped out last year, I think a case could be made that, you know, maybe they'd be better off letting him walk, go to Houston or wherever else and kind of restarting, bringing in a different guard, letting Maxi get a little bit more uh, touches and things of that nature. So I think an argument could be made either way. But I do think if he's here, I'm sure, you know, Nick Nurse is a guy as intelligent and, and intuitive as he is, will be able to find ways to you know, maximize hard and even given his limitations on the defensive end. What do you make, uh, Michael, of his um, propensity, I guess, to push his players, play them a lot of minutes? I mean, that was one of the things with Doc. He stuck with his guys. I don't know how Nurse, you know, is with his younger players as opposed to Doc. Uh, how do you see that kind of unfolding? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because Nick, like you said, he's not a guy that's been known, especially over the past couple seasons, for developing or giving a lot of opportunity to the younger guys. I know Chris Boucher, uh, after the Raptors were eliminated this past season, had some comments about how he felt like he didn't get um, you know, as much opportunity as he probably would have liked. Gary Trent Jr. Uh, had some similar situation during the season where he was kind of riding the bench and made some comments about it. So it, it's a situation where I think you're going to see him ride the top guys a lot, obviously, and I think you're going to see him not be afraid to challenge guys publicly in a way that the Sixers haven't had in the past couple of years in terms of, you know, they've kind of developed a reputation as, as an organization that's, you know, I guess somewhat soft, for lack of a better word, on star players, both under Brett Brown and under Doc. And I think Nick Nurse brings a little bit more of a hard-nosed, you know, no-nonsense, not afraid to, you know, call out a player if that's necessary. And I think those two factors, will, you know, could be a good a good change for a Philly team that's been, you know, a little bit soft in, in some areas over the past couple of years. Yeah, we played some audio earlier from Nick, and I think that will really be something that stands out, which is, you know, I don't know if you heard this audio where he says, hey, I sat down Kyle Lowry after we lost game one, and he scored zero points in the game. And he said, look, I'm coming after you and Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green in the film session that we're about to go watch. So it sounds as like Nurse will hold the players accountable. I guess the question is, he has dinner or lunch or whatever with Joel Embiid. Has Embiid bought into, I need that. I need to, to get me, I won my MVP. Now to get me to that next level, maybe this is the kind of guy that I need. I think so, Mike, on paper at least, you know, it's easy to buy into that before the, in the summer after a disappointing exit coming off, you know, playing for Doc, who, like we said, is a little bit softer on the star players. To me, the real question is going to be how Joel, and, you know, and other guys for that matter, but Joel being obviously the MVP, responds to something like that. Once, you know, we're in December, in January, and the team's struggling, and he, Nick, says something that Joel doesn't agree with. Joel has not been a guy that's known to, you know, hold his tongue uh, when he has something to say, whether it's, uh, an opponent, his own teammates, you know, someone in the organization. So on paper, I do think it's something that he accepts that, you know, maybe a, a little bit more hard love could be something that would be beneficial to him. But it's something that he doesn't have a ton of experience with in the league. And it's something I think that everyone's going to want to keep an eye on, you know, as the season develops and we get into that, those dog days in the middle of the season, how 
you know, he truly feels about having a coach that can prod him in a, in a way like that. Yeah. Um, obviously when a coach comes from another organization, you start to think of the ties he has, uh, a Fred Van Vliet, a Pascal Siakam. Do you see those names as being possibilities or is that just, Hey, you connect the dots because of the coach. I think it's a little bit of both, Mike. That's usually always a tendency when you get a new coach and you project about the players. I do think there's some interest in Fred Van Vliet, both on Van Vliet's part, who's, you know, had a lot of positive things to say about Nick Nurse publicly, like, you know, supported him after he got this Sixers job. And as a guy that would potentially fit with the Sixers, especially if Harden were to leave and you need, an, uh, you know, another lead guard to kind of fill that role, Van Vliet's a guy that can, you know, get his own shot, uh, produce points, space the floor, things like that. So I do think there could be some potential interest there. You know, Siakam is another guy that technically fits the mold of what Nick Nurse would like to do. You know, if the Sixers could somehow get him, I do think he'd be an upgrade, obviously, over a Tobias Harris or over a P.J. Tucker in one of those wing spots. But, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of names that we hear over the next month or so associated with the Sixers and Nick Nurse. I'm sure they'll kick the tires on a lot of them. But I, I do think Van Vliet specifically is one that, you know, there might be a little bit of, of something to moving forward. Uh, I know we're about one month tomorrow from free agency, but in your mind, will James Harden be back? Yeah, I, I think so, Mike. It just seems like it's the best basketball opportunity. You know, he'll, he'll get a bag. He'll get an opportunity to still play on a, a team with championship, you know, hopes and aspirations. There's a chance that he walks, but my gut feeling now was that they'll they'll figure something out. Daryl Morey has been smitten with him for you know a very long time, and now that he has him in Philadelphia, it's tough to imagine him letting him you know leave the organization at this point. Yeah, you know I go back and forth. I'm sure we all do, but it seems like uh, Morey got him. He wanted him the year before. Harden wanted to be here the year before. After all the courting of him to finally get him to then let him walk seems to be. Probably um, a little far-fetched, so I think I agree. At this point, I don't know, I could change my mind tomorrow. Uh, Michael Kasky, blow Maine, why we have you. Uh, NBA Finals, two improbables, the way I see it. I mean, Denver, most people just kind of looked at them as an afterthought. Miami, the eighth seed. Uh, who do you like? Yes, yeah, you know, I don't think it's a dream matchup for the NBA, match uh, like ratings-wise, but for a basketball fan, I think it's going to be really uh, an entertaining series. Ultimately, I like Denver. Uh, I think they'll take care of business maybe five or six games. They've just been, you know, a c- consistent since the regular season. They were the best team in the West most of the time. They haven't shown any signs of dropping off. Jokic is playing, you know, uh, on another level. And as good as the Heat are, I think the talent disparity and the depth disparity finally catches up to them in this finals. And uh, Nuggets get that first title in franchise history. Uh, and, and, and I'm rooting for Denver, and I want Jokic to win because I think Embiid looks at Jokic and says, I'm better than him, I won the MVP, and now that he's won his MVP, Jokic says, great, you have that, I have this, and I hopefully Embiid looks at that and says, all right, that's the next thing I want to go for, and I don't need to hear Jimmy Butler won a championship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, and you hope, you know, you do hope that Joel would see something like that and use it as fuel, considering that it, you know, the narrative now is that Jokic has obviously distinguished himself with this postseason run, and now it's, you know, kind of on Joel to respond and show that he can, you know, level up as well. Michael Kasky Blomane, CBS Sports, covers the NBA. Check out his piece over at CBSSports.com right now on Nick Nurse bringing a new voice and a championship pedigree to the Sixers. 
But as he mentions, the front office still has a lot of work to do. We'll keep our eyes on that. Michael Cassie Blomain here on the Sports Bash. MKB, thanks, my brother. Thanks, Mike. Good talking to you. As always, MKB here on the Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Michael Kasky Blomain, of course, a alum of 97.3 ESPN.com. He was the one who put that poll out, by the way, about the Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler thing that uh, people were getting on my case for. It wasn't my poll. It was his poll. Get on his case. Uh, Dan and EHT, Fred Van Vliet will be a sixer. Thank you, Nick Nurse. There is a lot of murmurs about that. I think Van Vliet can opt out of his contract if memory serves me. Um, a lot of reaction on our conversation with David Sampson. This conversation is making it seem like the manager is just a figurehead with no control over the team or the game whatsoever. We brought that up. I've kind of been talking about this for years, though, Tom. Like, we blame the manager all the time. A couple years ago, and this is one of the things that, you know, I don't cover baseball as much as I do the NBA. Like, I go to NBA games more than I do baseball games as media. I've gone to way more Sixers games than I have Phillies games as media. So I've definitely got more insight on how teams are run in the NBA than I do in baseball. But talking to some people over the years, I remember having Seth Everett on the show. He used to do a weekly spot with us from NBC Sports. And he would stop me and he said, we got to stop blaming the manager. They don't make the lineups. So they don't make the decisions anymore. So the GMs make the lineups. The team presidents, you just heard from a team president. Somebody said the guy's Monday morning quarterbacking. What was he Monday morning quarterbacking? He hasn't been in the game for, for, you know, he has no skin in the game. He's just telling you like it is. If you thought he was Monday morning quarterback, or if you thought he was Monday morning quarterbacking, that's essentially you saying, well, I think this way and the way it really is, I don't agree with. So I don't like this guy's thoughts. You don't like hearing the truth. So you just said, I don't like this guy. The truth is the manager doesn't really make that many decisions like yesterday the manager didn't decide that Bryce Harper wasn't playing that was decided by the organization a shoe day and a spike day yesterday was a shoe day for Bryce Harper I got sports bash do you remember coming up next bash on 97.3 ESPN Uh, getting ready to get out of here on the sports bash do you remember May 31st. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Well, uh, Albert Bell used his forearm to break up the double play in the eighth inning against Milwaukee. It was Fernando Vidia who got shaken up on the play. Bell received no suspension from the league. Can you imagine if that happened today? Oh, it wouldn't happen. He would have suspended five, six games today. Yeah, Albert Bell or Joey Bell at the time? I think he was still, I think it was Albert Bell at that point. It was 1996 is when that happened. Uh, 2007, LeBron James scored 25 consecutive points in the fourth quarter. The Eastern Conference Finals in a double overtime win against the Pistons. That was 07. That was really like the changing of the guard from that Pistons run over to the Cavs. Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting because that Pistons team, it looked like they were going to win two NBA Finals, but then Tim Duncan and Tony Parker changed the tide of that series, and then kind of thought, oh, well, maybe the Pistons will be back again, and they never found the magic. They didn't. That team had kind of a, had that one 
championship. Window. And they had the two-year window. Got the championship there. And that was it. And that was it for them. It's hard to win like that. But they had a bunch of grinders. That team would not be good today. That team would be interesting for one reason. Does, if in today's game, does Billups and Hamilton become more, you know, more consistent three-point shooters? Because back then, you didn't need to shoot three like you do now. Billups and Hamilton could hit threes. Wallace could, Rasheed Wallace could hit threes. I'd be specific there. Ben Wallace couldn't try to bond. Um, Rasheed Wallace, do those guys in today's game come up as better shooters? Uh, also on this day, the Cavaliers, J.R. Smith clock mismanagement at the oh. end of regulation caught the Cavs. That was an today. opportunity to steal game one <laughs> of the NBA Finals at Golden State. The Warriors go on to sweep the Cavs. It is LeBron James' final series in his second go-around with Cleveland. But that's the famous meme yeah. where LeBron's like, what are, what you, are you doing? doing? Yeah. J.R. Smith now is a, uh, a collegiate golfer. Oh, that's right. He went back to a college at age like 36. The uh, NBA Finals tomorrow night. You can hear him right here on 97.3 ESPN. Are you uh, excited? Are you invested? Or are you just like, eh? I'm intrigued. I'm interested. I wouldn't say I'm like, you know, jumping up and down, going crazy. But I'm, I'm very interested to see because... This is like Jokic's moment. This is the Nuggets moment. This is this is their moment to say everything was worth it. And standing across the court is that guy Jimmy Butler saying basically, you know, take a long walk on a short pier. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna watch with um you know, I I'm kinda pulling for Denver. I wanna see Jokic and I like Murray. I'm a big fan of Murray. So I wanna see uh Jokic win. But I hope it kind of jump starts and beat that next goal is hey I wanted to win the MVP got that and now Jokic won the championship I want to win a championship so we'll do NBA finals preview tomorrow Phillies tonight against the Metropolitans who's been tonight Noah uh, I think Noah was scratching yeah Carlos Carrasco former Philly by the way funny how that happened uh, Josh has game night coming up next, and I am done. See you tomorrow.